Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. It is episode 183. We're recording this on Sunday, July 17th, 2022, at about 3.15 p.m. Pacific time. I'm Terry. We got Todd. We got Zach. Guys, 14 straight. Mariners, 14 straight, heading into the All-Star break. Yeah, perfect time to have a week off, basically. No, (laughs) never mind. Yeah, well, yeah, they don't play again till Friday, so yeah, that sucks. Like <coughs> when you're hot, like they haven't had a day off in like two weeks, right? Yeah, it's been a it's been a while. But then they and they just got their uh, they just heard today too that they've got a second All Star. Ty France finally made the team, which is good. Rodriguez and Julio gonna compete in the home run derby tomorrow. He's the first Seattle Rodriguez since A-Rod to get like 20 home runs and 10 stolen bases, right? Yeah. yeah. I, well, okay, well, he's the first Mariner rookie. He's like first player in, in baseball history to have like the totals he's had in, yeah, in terms in of first like, 90 games. In his first 90 games in terms of home runs, RBIs, stolen bases, I think. So yeah. is he eligible for rookie of the year? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, his first game was opening day this year. Yeah, and he he had about three weeks where he was in about 090. And so his like 275 average is like actually should be way higher. <laughs> yeah, the dude is a stud. Um, and yeah, I I give the Mariners a pretty good shot at winning 15, uh, 15 straight when they come back on Friday because uh they play the Astros and the Astros have to go like fly to i want to say they have to fly to the bronx and play a double header against the yankees on thursday and then fly to seattle to play uh to play the mariners for three and who's it are we are is uh futures uh back-to-back cy young winner robbie ray is he pitching on friday <laughs> um i don't think he's pitching friday i think marco's gonna be the first one up out of the break oh, that's but... too bad do you guys yeah. know what percent chance 538 gives to the mariners making the postseason I saw someone put it at like 63% or something like that. As of right now, they're projecting them to finish at 88 and 74, which gives them a 70% chance of making the playoffs. So you're telling me there's a chance. They won 90 games last year and they didn't make the playoffs. So, but it's true. uh, I was looking at it. when I was looking at the futures odds at the casino, I was like, I was looking at, okay, Mariners to win the AL West. It was like, 20 to 1 and and then it was like uh, odds to win the al pennant was like better odds than that it was like it's like we're that far behind it's like it's it's kind of ridiculous to think that we could win the division but we have a better chance of going to the world series when we never have before oh yeah i I think the the astros are kind of uncatchable is what they're saying it feels very 2014 royals is all i'll say so we're gonna lose in the world series well, okay, but maybe you can win it the next year. Did you? Speaking of the Royals, did you guys see the story about the Royals this week against the Blue Jays? Oh, the ten players that had to stay home because yeah. because they're they're assholes who chose to stay unvaccinated. But this is the best part. Say what you will about being unvaccinated. They 
would have gotten vaccinated and gone to Toronto were they in contention, okay? We're going to do a douchebag of the movie that we're going to deep dive, but those players already are douchebags in my heart. Well, and they also and, won. They were like, and they, they were like the first, first game. They were like minus uh, the Blue Jays were like minus four fifty. It was like one of the biggest favorites I've ever seen in a baseball Jays game. They, and they won three to one. <laughs> well, and the Blue Jays just fired their manager going into that too. But yeah, you've got you've got a couple of those guys on the Royals like Mer- Whit Merrifield and Andrew Benintendi yeah, are are like top yeah. trade prospects, and now they're not going they're they're untradeable because no one wants to get them if they have to go play in Toronto in the postseason. Yep. Yankees 100% vaccinated. Go figure. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, All-Star Break is coming up, which is going to be good. But let's talk about some movies now. But first, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm drinking uh, some wine. I'm not punch drunk quite yet. I did want to have some pudding, but I didn't put in the effort. I had to go renew my gym membership. There we go. There we go. Todd, what are you drinking? I'm drinking the No Curfew Chardonnay from 2020 from Napa. It's actually pretty good. It's a little wonky, but uh, it, it tastes pretty good. I like how Todd's been getting into wines more. You know, mm-hmm. he's like he's like Maya. You know, after she drank the Sasakaya, it's like it's it's opening up a whole new venue for him. That tastes pretty good to me. I don't know. He's really into Rieslings, Rieslings, Rieslings. That Vouvray shit. So uh, I have uh, I I went to the the brewery. There was a big event happening in Forest Grove, so it took me forever to get there. But when I finally got to the front of the line at the brewery, the guy behind the bar is like, "Hey, you're here for your podcast beer." Like, wow. Yeah, I know. I know. It's pretty. I don't know if that's something to be proud of (laughs) or something to be a little ashamed by, but it's awesome. Can we get a sticker in their window or something? I think we need to. I think, well, I, we need to first out. get Get it in the made. libraries. Let the people yeah. decide. Hey, uh, Adam's all it. about getting the, the merch and stuff. Like, we just need to get some, like, you know, stickers that you put on your car. Just put, slap one in the window. We need YouTube videos. Someone actually told me, why don't you guys do the podcast anymore? I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? We do it every week. He's like, I haven't seen anything on YouTube. People watch YouTube for podcasts. Just upload Adam, them. put our shit on. I mean, we are three good-looking guys. We will get the hits. <laughs> uh well there you go there you go yeah tweet at us if you if you would have a if you want a a sticker tweet at us and if we get enough we might actually get some but uh so yeah this is this is one of my favorites to have this is their long strides on the beach their uh their summer their summer uh juicy ipa uh brewed with with a pineapple and uh, I'm having a beer also day in honor of the uh the open champion of the year cam smith who talked about how many Let's just see how many beers will fit into the claret jug. So, how much money do you think Vegas yeah. raked in off idiots who bet Tiger would make the cut? I mean, they must be that must be single handedly financing all of the strip this year, right? No, because he made the cut the first or two, the first two majors when no blame, he really was like playing on one leg. So, I, don't, I mean, and they're probably skipped, making back some money, but then he skipped the third one to prepare for this one and played horrible so right he was like plus nine going into that going into the second day yeah he like, finished in like the bottom 10 of the entire tournament and you know a lot of good players bet on him a lot of good players were down there Kepka didn't make the cut like uh justin thomas barely snuck by on making the cut like i, I don't know it was it was a weird field mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, uh, make sure you're subscribing, rating, reviewing wherever you find your podcast. And put stickers in your windows. And 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 let us know if you would put a sticker in your window, and then we'll uh, we'll send you one next to the baby on board. Yeah, and if baby his hands on board. are rocking, don't come a knocking. Almost, almost sideways, sideways on board. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about what we've been watching this week, and we are going to start with Zach. All right, this week I watched a good movie. Amazing. I feel like we haven't seen a lot of good movies. This summer sucked. I, I can't remember the last time I gave thumbs up to a movie on this podcast. I think it was Top Gun. I'm not sure. Um, But I did give thumbs up to this movie. It is a movie that isn't getting a huge release. I'm not really sure why. It's called The Forgiven, and it has a pretty big cast in it. It has Ray Fiennes, Jessica Chastain, Matt Smith, front of the podcast, mm-hmm. Caleb Landry-Jones and Abby Lee. Um, the story, the, the filmmaker is uh, John Michael McDonough, who is brothers with the guy who did the Three Billboards movie, uh, Martin McDonough, who I think has a movie coming out this year. Um, anyway, The Forgiven is uh, a story about uh, this group of Americans who are uh, meeting in Morocco for one of those glamorous kind of Trump-esque parties that you hear about that only billionaires are allowed to go to. And at the beginning of the movie, Ray Fiennes and Jessica Chastain are this couple. They're, they, they pretty much hate each other. Ray Fiennes is an alcoholic and uh they uh they're invited to this party they're driving in the middle of the night in the sahara and they accidentally hit um a a, uh a young kid who's trying to sell them fossils i i believe and um you know he's from this kind of nomadic community that's around there and so uh his family gets wind that their son has died and they sort of confront these rich people at this lavish party it's kind of a lavish sort of F. Scott Fitzgerald, Baz Luhrmann type party. And it's contrasted pretty, you know, uh, uh, majorly with the living conditions in the, in the hermetic communities kind of around it. Um, and, and what basically happens is they sort of say like, Ray Fiennes, you killed our son. Like, you know, you need to, we need to avenge the death somehow. So come with us and give it, let's uh, help us give him a proper burial. And I won't say a whole lot more about what happens after that. Um, except that this movie is really interesting. It kind of starts out a little bit like the same premise of, of Baz except reverse you know with the with the uh brad pitt and uh 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 uh, gosh i'm totally forgetting on his wife who is who is his wife in that Kate blanchett Blanchett. yeah when she gets shot it's sort of an accidental (laughs) murder that strikes a sort of an international conflict um this movie i think you know a cynical person would say it's sort of about the moral rehabilitation of the ray fines character who starts out this very kind of cynical hard-edged a xenophobic racist uh drunk from england um and you know his heart gets warmed i don't know if the if actually the experience of watching the movie is like that i think the movie has a harder edge to it but it is interesting to see how the character kind of evolves over the course of the film um there are no easy kind of pat resolutions there's a little bit of like bonfire of the vanities in it as well except it's actually good um jessica chastain is really good as this very materialistic shallow wife um, and the movie keeps cutting back to the party scenes, which I don't really totally understand. But by the end of the movie, when you reach the sort of resolution, you sort of see why the director chose to do it that way. Um, I like this movie. I, I kept on thinking about it afterwards. It's not like a great movie. I don't think it's Oscar movie per se, but it is a very enjoyable, interesting adult, almost Luca Guadagnino type movie uh, that I give three stars. And, and I really applaud uh, Jessica Chastain and Ray Fiennes for making it because it's not really a, a conventional commercial feel good movie. It's a it's a thoughtful movie about culture con- conflict and uh kind of lavish parties in in western sahara so uh yeah good movie check it out so is that the first time you've seen one of uh john michael mcdonough's movies uh i believe so did, did he do cavalry i think cavalry I, and the guard I know you, 
Yeah, I know you like cavalry. Yeah, you were made a Netflix movie with Brad Pitt. War on everything. It was I don't know something. It wasn't Brad Pitt? I don't think. War on everyone. Alexander Scarter was was in that. Yeah, I know that movie was on my Oscar predictions list last year. Uh, I've been looking forward to that one for a while. I I didn't know that it was actually getting released yet. So I was it like at one of the art house theaters around here or yes something? yeah art house theater around here and uh yeah I, I i would recommend it i think if it if it had come out during oscar season last year it probably would have been in bigger contention i don't know if jessica chastain is better in this movie than she was for her oscar winning performance she's not in this movie quite as much it's really more of a ray fines show and i think he's really good this is probably one of his best performances uh gosh long time probably i would say 10 years at least nice yeah, I saw it came out, but it hasn't been anywhere around here, so I haven't had a chance to see it. Check it out. It's worth it. Awesome. Cool. All right, Todd, you're next. What'd you watch? Uh, I watched a Hulu original movie. It came out, I think, the beginning of this month. It's called The Princess, which is directed by Lee Van Liet, and uh, it stars Joey King, uh, and she is, uh, plays the title role as The Princess. She's the... Uh, this very independent woman who's supposed to be married to Julius played by Dominic Cooper, who's this really evil, powerful man. And he, but uh, she refuses and she's sort of held captive. And so they could force her to marry him and her father, the King has never like, he never had a son. So uh, he approved of somebody strong willed like Julius to marry his daughter and take the throne. And uh, then it sort of becomes an action movie. Like the, the princess has to evade her captors and go on this revenge tour to rescue her family and take back the throne. And uh, it's it's sort of this medieval action movie in the vein of, I don't know, I mean, I guess you could say, like, uh, I mean, I, I guess The Last Duel wouldn't be that all that far removed. But uh, Oko Kurilenko is also in the movie. She's like a, the henchwoman, Moira. She's she's pretty awesome. But Joy King actually like, kicks ass in this. So, like, she wouldn't be in, like, my top five, like, actresses of her age that I would think that would be good in a martial arts kind of movie but she kills it like it's there's a little like charlie's angels in there and uh like uh, she's almost like a young like tomb raider level angelina almost like i mean she's like really convincing i would have never thought that um it's not actually a royalty movie like it would seem on the on the the surface it's more like prince of persia or Waterworld or something like an action movie set at that time involving the royal family kind of but it's so it makes it a little corny when it's trying to be serious the it doesn't feel or look like TV at all, which is one thing I really liked about it because um, almost every movie, especially Hulu movies, all look like they they were made to be on TV. Uh, this one actually has some decent uh, visual effects and everything. Um, it's got this like pseudo feminist vibe that reminded me a little of like Anola Holmes or something, uh, which also was never in theaters, which I, I kind of hate that. Like uh, some of these movies really need to be in theaters. The music is kind of jarring. There's like really like blaring guitar uh music score which is kind of weird it's a little repetitive but it's also kind of badass i'm giving it two and a half stars i would recommend you checking it out if you if you want to just like an enjoy kind of a a female-led action movie which uh we don't really get that many of yeah i remember seeing like the posters in the trailer for that and it was really trying to i i didn't see this other one either but it felt like it was trying to play off of like what ready or not did a year or two ago sort of i mean that was definitely more like in the horror action but yeah yeah cool all right i want i want to see that one too i haven't had a chance to watch that one all right uh my movie that i watched my oscar watch i watched a bunch of stuff this week 
Um, but the Oscar watch I had uh, goes back 10 years and was a sole nominee for costume design. One of those lovely sole costume design nominees. Albert Nobbs. Not Albert Nobbs. Oh, that oh had, was it that, that, uh, that movie with Paul Giamatti? No, it was not that movie with Paul Giamatti. Are you talking John Barney's Adams. version? Yes. That was 2010. Be... Yeah, okay, that was 2010. Okay. I uh, love Barney's vision, by the way. Uh, so uh, here's another hint. This is this is a movie twin. Snow, Snow White and the Huntsman. The other one. Oh. What, what was uh, Oz Snow... the Great and Powerful? No, Snow White and the Huntsman's twin was Mirror Mirror. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. Which was nominated for costume design. Uh, apparently nominated posthumously. Aiko Ishioka was nominated. Uh, so this is yeah. So Mirror Mirror. Um, when it came out, it this was known as like definitely the the less heralded one like snow white and the huntsman with kristen stewart and chris hemsworth was really the one that everyone was paying attention to and it was easy to forget that this other one existed it was directed by tarsam singh and it stars lily collins as snow white julia roberts plays the queen the wicked witch however you want to say it uh and prince charming is army hammer uh, you also have Nathan Lane and a cast of other ones like Mari Winningham, Michael Lerner is in it, Sean Bean is in it also. And it kind of flips the story on its head a little bit where uh, where the the um, the witch with the with the mirror is is the queen and has kind of it's almost like evil stepmother type vibe more than uh, your how you'd normally look at Snow White. And uh, and Snow White ends up going out into the out into the woods, escapes to the dwarves, and the dwarves kind of turn her into Robin Hood in some ways, where they're 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 bandits and they she's helping them rob from the rich and give to the poor. Uh, Army Hammer kind of plays the role not only of Prince Charming but also the Huntsman. He's kind of a combination of the two. Uh, this movie really actually surprised me. I liked it better than I thought I was going to. I w- really was not looking forward to it. And, uh, and it, it really is charming. Um, Lily Collins does an admirable job. The, all the dwarves are hilarious and they're, they're great, uh, great actors that, and a lot of them are like, Oh, I know this guy from something like the, the, um, the uh, actor who's in like in Bruges that talks about going to the brothels. He's one of the dwarves. And then you've got, you've got a couple of the other ones that are, your are those faces you'll just recognize. Uh, this is probably one of the better performances I've ever seen from army hammer because he's was, he's always so good at being stiff and wooden and, uh, and just like stuck up like you see out of the, when he plays the Winkle vibe, but this is probably the goofiest I've ever seen him. And it actually works. Uh, Julia Roberts does an admirable job as the queen. And I mean, yeah, three-star movie. Who knew mirror mirror. I actually liked it. I didn't think I was going to, but I did. So is it okay to like army hammer before the pre canceled army hammer? I, I have always been of the opinion that you, uh, you, it, you love the art, but can hate the artist. So, right. I'm not of that opinion. I know the, you aren't. The question, <laughs> that's not the question. The question is, you know, can I like Annie Hall? Because that was made before, you know, Woody Allen raped his daughter. I mean, like Army Hammer, you know, the, the I think the, the accusations came after Mirror Mirror. I know this was exactly the conversation you wanted to have, Terry. I, I mean, but... it, you, you, the thing is with, the, once you start, 
start trying to make those divisions, you you never know when it actually started. You just know that's when a, accusations started. So, I mean, if once you start saying, oh, I'm going to like everything up to this year and this particular day when I heard that something may have possibly happened, I mean, you're, you're, uh, it, it's, yeah. Okay, well, and then you're also being a, um, making your judgment on what is worthy of canceling somebody in your movie watching opinion too. So then you're, you're really just spinning around and like, you're eventually going to get dizzy. So maybe the better question is, is it okay to like Lily Collins because it's before Emily in Paris? That's the best. That's, oh, that's, that, that's that. the better question. <laughs> At one point she was charming, you know, she was charming with also the also canceled Ansel Elgort in baby driver, but you know, Emily in Paris, I mean that, you that- know, wasn't it Lily James in Baby Driver? Lily James oh, in Baby wait. Driver. Oh, okay. I'm confused. Lily Collins was God the one from The Blind Side, right? Yes, but she was. But Lily Collins is the one in Emily in Paris, so he did have that right. Yeah. Okay. Which I've never seen, but all good questions. All good yeah, questions. Very deep. This when when they when they when they were involving the right people. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's move into our featured reviews. We have two of them this week as uh, we have one movie all of us watched, one movie that uh, Todd couldn't get to, just Zach and I watched, and we're going to talk about both of them. And we're going to start with the movie all of us got to see, and that is Where the Crawdads Sing. I had a family once. They called me Kaya. A little girl surviving in the marsh on her own, reviled and shunned. Hello, Miss Kyle. I hear y'all by muscle. Sometimes I feel so invisible. I wonder if I'm here at all. This movie was just released this weekend, and from what I heard, did better than anticipated at the box office. I think it made like 17 million this weekend, um, which for a a film with this uh, with this subject matter is, I mean, it's not going to make blockbuster money, but. Yeah, finished third in the box office behind Thor and Minions, uh, seventeen million, barely edging out Top Gun Maverick, which is still in double digits, made twelve million dollars at the box office. So, Todd, you're going to start us off on this. Tell us all about where the crawdads sing and what you thought. Okay, it's directed by Olivia Newman, which is a director I'm not familiar with. She had one other movie before this. Apparently, she's making a movie about Rover Suede sometime in the next couple of years. I don't know, uh, but it stars Daisy Edgar Jones, and she plays this girl named Kyra. Uh, she's a woman who grows up in the marsh in uh, North Carolina, and in 1969, she's stuck in the middle of a murder trial. She was originally sort of abandoned by her family and uh, basically had to learn to live on her own. She falls for multiple guys, including Chase, which is played by Harris Dickinson, and he winds up dead, and so she's blamed by the townspeople because she's an outsider. Uh, David Strathairn plays her attorney. He's probably the most famous person in the movie. Uh, the movie doesn't really lean into that plot very much. It's more like a YA romance novel, kind of, with a murder plot. At least I think so, because I kind of Zach just wanted to fell asleep. Uh, but it's it starts... Uh, <laughs> Zach with... is now a verb. I like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, it starts with a seemingly ambitious... Uh, like, a, or, I don't know, ambition, I guess. Uh, and... Uh, it sort of is sort of Winter's Bone in the beginning in that kind of feel. I'm I'm not really sure how this wasn't a mini series because it's uh it's laid out pretty well and how how from in the beginning how it could have like, they could have dug a lot deeper into a lot of things. The message the message is absolutely hammered down blatantly, uh, which makes you not really care about his agenda 
Daisy Edgar Jones is having a year. She's really talented. She's she's got fresh. She's got under the banner in heaven, of heaven, and she's got this, which Terry said is a decent box office hit for its um for its budget. Uh, the screenwriter was nominated for a Beast of the Southern Wild. I don't know if she's done anything since then, so uh, that's kind of interesting. But this is more sappy and more, almost a fantasy, which makes it kind of lame to me. Uh, I was the only man in the audience. Uh, I'm giving it a few stars. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think I was the only man under the age of 50 that was in the audience. So there was that, uh, I'll go next on this one. This kind of surprised me. Uh, it, I, it's one of those, you kind of have to be in the right mood for, I feel. And for whatever reason, it struck me at the right way at the right time. It felt very much like a, like a nineties coming of age movie i mean we've talked about some of those a couple year or two ago i reviewed rambling rose we've talked about man on the moon or man in the moon um it also has a little bit of forrest gump in there it like it feels like something that came out of the 90s and if you're in the right mind frame for it and you're in the right mood for that uh it it can really be effective i totally got into it i thought it it really worked well uh it it felt very lived in and this uh the story I thought was very well told. All the characters seemed fairly believable. You're right. Some of it was a little wooden. It, it kind of hit you over the head with some stuff. You kind of saw some things coming a mile away. Uh, but I thought uh, Daisy Edgar Jones gave a great performance. David Strathairn was amazing in it. Uh, I, I don't think anyone plays backwoods hick better than Garrett Dillahunt, who plays the father in this. Like he's just perfect in that role. And that's all he like all he ever plays and probably ever should play. I'm giving it a very strong three stars. I really enjoyed this movie. And again, it was kind of like the last one I talked about. Surprise the heck out of me. I did not expect to like this movie at all. And it really surprised. So I'm giving it three stars. Kind of a throwback for me. Nostalgia for sure. Zach, Todd gave it two. I gave it three. And so tell us about your two and a half star review. Well, first, I'm not giving it two and a half stars. First okay. of all, uh, the movie is based on a book that I had never heard of. Maybe we are not the right target audience for this book, believe it or not. It's many My things wife that we're the target audience for, but not this book, uh, which apparently was on the New York Times bestseller list for like 170 weeks. I mean, it like broke all kinds of records um, and it was partially produced it was a book that was part of reese witherspoon's hello sunshine book club and reese witherspoon is listed as a producer on the movie in case you didn't see the regal behind the scenes feature at every single freaking movie the last uh two months um yeah i'm much more with todd on this one um let's let's go over some laundry list items of things that didn't work for this movie okay number one uh, this girl is, lives in the backwoods. She's called the Marsh Girl. She's made fun of by the community in the town, even though they're really all white trash as well. And yet she looks very like attractive and accomplished. And she's got a lot of makeup and eyeliner and lipstick and her outfits are pretty fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, Mirror Mirror won the costume design. Maybe this will get a costume design nomination as well. There's a lot of different costumes in it. Uh, I also find it a little bit confusing that until the age of apparently like 17 or 18, she was illiterate. But in a very quick span of time, she goes from being illiterate to not only reading and writing, but being one of the world's foremost experts on the biology in, in the marsh. Uh, this movie presents 
you know, a lot, a lot of conflicts that it never really executes. For example, we learned that uh, social services is there to uh, take her away. Uh, but then let's not really ever address that again. Oh, she has to pay the back taxes on her property. Uh, let's kind of solve that in a very easy kind of convenient solution uh, to the problem. Um, the family abandoned her. Well, we're going to have the brother come back and just to remind you that he's in the military, he's going to be in a Green Beret uniform every scene that he's in. Uh, this movie takes place in the 1960s. Apparently in the 1960s, North Carolina, nobody ever heard of the civil rights movement. Um, nobody really heard of black people either. There's only two black characters in this movie, and they're very much in the magical uh, side black character tradition of Bagger Vance. Um, yes, this movie is, has a lot of cinematic uh, derivation. It, it wants to be the notebook. There's a bit of Nell there. There's a little bit of the help, I feel like. There's even, I'd say, a little bit of Coda. I mean, you get this girl who's supposedly very rugged and she's individualistic and she thinks for herself and she's working in the marsh and then she looks like Daisy Edgar Jones. I mean, come on, give me a break. Um, yes, there's also a little bit of Man in the Moon. But like with the Man in the Moon and the Notebook, I mean, those were real characters. Those were characters with conflicts and, and, and they were uh, not polished. You know, you look at like... The, you know, in the notebook, I mean, the, Ryan Gosling is like broke in that movie and they, they spend half the time fighting in that movie. There's no there's there's like scars to those characters. And these this movie is just like, you know, TV movie of the week sort of luster. There's nothing interesting uh, about these characters. Um when the sad truth is there could have been something interesting. I think the idea of a girl who grew up in the marsh selling oysters and shells to earn a living is really fascinating. The fact that she knows so much about the marsh to become a best-selling author. Let's let's dive into that a little bit, you know? There's an interesting scene when she meets with her book publisher that's really in the service of the silly trivial, you know, trial plot. That could have been a movie in its own. They're, they're meeting, you know, the clash of cultures, educated, uneducated city, you know, uh, uh, you know, marsh folk. I, this movie, it, 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 it takes a potentially interesting character and environment, but it's undermined by conventional and ill-conceived kind of pot boiler John Grisham elements. And I gave it two stars. The thing that is interesting about the movie, two things I'll give it credit for. Number one, they don't have kids at the end of the movie. I like that. Number two, if you look at the movies that are released and our biggest box office earners this year, they are all very male-centric, testosterone-heavy, you know, Top Gun, Doctor Strange, Thor, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, you know, Batman. We don't get a lot of movies that are more female-centered. So I, I do think that there's a market and, and a need for movies like this. There were a lot of women in the audience that I went, but I think... I don't want to be condescending when I say that I think women's entertainment needs to take it up a notch. Okay. I think women are sophisticated enough to also see the holes in this story. So uh, a, a, a disappointed two-star review. I think Reese Witherspoon probably knows this is not a great movie either. I think if you saw this movie when you were eight, you'd be giving it four stars and it'd be in your top hundred of all time. Oh, I'd probably like it because less. This, if this movie is, this movie I feel is so much man on the moon. Oh, but that's ridiculous. The Man on the Moon was about a hard-edged tomboy, you know, who rejects uh, her, her, you know, spoiled sister and refuses to conform to what her family expects of her and has real conflicts with the people in her life. In this movie, it's just TV. Of the week. And the trial, there was no trial in The Man in the Moon. There was no murder mystery. There was no bullshit about, you know, who's she going to choose. I mean, this movie... It's just, you know, there's no scene where they get swept up on, 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 in the leaves, right? And then, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the climactic sex scene, he says, I can't do it because I respect you too much. 
I mean, give me a break. I, I'm sure that's catnip to some audiences out there, but uh, but not not this one. I, I think this movie has a lot more of the Notebook's DNA, and the Notebook is a much better movie than this. Yeah, the, yeah, there no no family drama. They just all leave her in the first twenty minutes of the movie, and she has no one to interact with. I wonder why there's no drama in this that, that she has there's in her the, relationship. Because those characters are never developed. Yeah, first of all, the mother doesn't even have a line in the movie, and then the father's basically doing the same thing that the dad did in the black phone, who was a much more interesting and complex character. This character is just kind of like we've seen. He's a stock character. We see it in every movie. I don't know the 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 dad in this. He, he had that. He had one moment there that just broke my heart, and and was I like I said, I love Garrett Dillahunt, and he always he always knocks out of the park when he plays characters like this. Like I said, it, it's one of those movies that you have to be in the right mindset for, and when when you are, it's it, it can really be a, a an enjoyable time, and that's what I had here. I will say, I would have liked it a whole lot more if it hadn't had like the last like minute of the movie. Um, but, uh, I like leave, leave some, leave some stones unturned. I'll just say, I'll just say that, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I loved it. I did. Well, I, I, I mean the, you know, the, 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 the masses agree with you. You didn't think this was kind of TV movie of the week material, which is also sort of a similarity to Coda that I saw in this movie. Like it, it, it Todd Todd said it accurately. It, it just hammers you on the head. There's like no nuance in this movie. Any questions that you have about the characters or their motives are like blatantly solved and they're thrown right in front of you. And there's like no mystery about it, you know? Like but I still think... like this movie's making money because it's a women's centered movie, and that's the way all these movies are. Which is like I said, it's like a YA novel kind of it's like i mean this is this is the way these these movies are and like people flock to go see them because they love the book and because they don't care if they don't change it to be more sophisticated in on the on the big screen this is this is what it is yeah i mean look i just i i think our culture uh is derisive about movies that are made for generally women's audiences and i feel like uh i'm glad that this movie i guess exists uh and there were a lot of people in the theater I saw it. I just think that it should have been better. And there are ways that it could have been better. And I also don't think that Dave, Daisy Edgar Jones was that great in it. I mean, I struggled to made it, make it through a couple episodes of Normal People. So again, I, maybe she's not really my, my cup of tea. But like, she doesn't age in this movie at all. Like, she looks the same when she, in 1960 as in 1969. And I don't know. I just, I, when I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see someone who grew up, you know, in the marsh. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe that's that's a that's not a flaw in her performance, but I can think of a lot of other actresses that would have been more compelling and, and harder around the edges. So because she doesn't look like the stereotype that they are all trying to portray her as, it's a bad movie. Well, it, it, when, it when this is all about breaking stereotypes, okay, it contributes. It. Well, but this movie has a lot of stereotypes, except for it's just it's it's inconceivable. I mean, you're really telling me that? I mean, that house looked in, in very pristine condition, right? And I don't know. I it's you look there's there's suspension of disbelief, but at a certain level, it's like I mean, really, like, am I really gonna believe that? I don't know. I gave it two stars. It wasn't boring. I think I, I enjoyed it more than Thor. I thought the two hours flew by. Uh, it was it was a lengthy two hours. I I okay. just barely did not pull a Zach and f fall asleep. There were a couple moments where I really groaned and wanted to go to sleep, 
Um, but uh, I also couldn't tell the two main actors apart. Was that a problem for you? So like one of them comes back and I was like, what the, why, why is he suddenly, like... suddenly acting in the, in it's so totally different. And yeah. Like I said, it, it, if you buy the premise and if you buy what it's given, it, it's a good movie. The and if re- you don't, it's not good. I, I wouldn't have given it three stars when I was, eight. I would have given it maybe two and a half stars if it was on Netflix. That's, that's what this movie really, that's where it should have lived. You totally would have, this would have been a top 10 of the year movie if it, if you saw it when you were eight. Well, apparently Elvis would have been a top 10 movie had I seen it, like Todd said. <laughs> there is True. that. There is that. All right. Well, I'm giving it three stars. Todd and Zach are giving it two stars. It's in theaters right now. Uh, if anything that we talked about, if any of that sounds interesting, go see it. Okay. That's where the crowdads sing. Let's move on from that and talk about uh this year's little movie that could um i feel like that's that's a great way to describe this one it's not very easily found yet but it's getting a little bit more of a wider release the more and more it goes on uh this is marcel the shell with shoes on sometimes i find my mind wandering thinking what would my family think do you think they could be out there Marcello, let's forget about being afraid. Just take the adventure. Okay, let's do it. I'm going to start talking about this one. It is directed by Dean Fleischer Camp, and uh, and he also stars in it playing Dean. Uh, it's kind of like a, almost like a fake documentary type of deal where he goes to this Airbnb and he discovers Marcel the Shell, this little shell of a person that uh, talks and exists and lives. It's him and his uh, and his aunt, I, or no, his his grandma, Connie, voiced by Isabella Rossellini, um, and Marcel is voiced by Jenny Slate. And if you've seen the trailer for this, you kind of get the tone that that it's going for here, and just how original the concept is. And it strikes you as, okay, this looks like it would make an amazing five to ten minute short, but how are they going to extend this out for an entire movie? And the concept of it is he that you have Marcel the Shell and Dean, the person who's staying there, decides to make some videos of him and post them online. He becomes this viral sensation and it becomes an opportunity for them to look for Marcel's family who has been lost, been abandoned, and and try to find this way to reunite them. Uh, I I love this movie. Uh, there there is so much there is so much to love here, and very little to hate. It is adorable. It um it is it knows exactly what it's trying to do. Like I said, it's this movie that feels like it would be an amazing short, but how is it going to extend it out for a full movie? It keeps itself very simple so that it can. I think a lot of these movies that try to expand, it's like, okay, let's try and find, we can go down this, this route and do this to try and extend our movie out. We can do the, this doesn't do any of that. It's a very simple premise, a very simple story. It tells its story, it finishes and it's done. And the whole time you get to see the world through the incredible, unique eyes of this tiny little shell character and, uh, and everything that, that, that entails it, it's it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful movie. It is 
undeniably irresistible, I think. And uh, it's a four star movie for me. I, I could, I could not, uh, I couldn't help it. It was, it was just amazing. It, it was, it was so original, so unique and, uh, and an amazing time, really, really short. Uh, and which is, which I think worked. It worked in this, in that it, it didn't like, I felt like it was getting to the end. I'm like, okay, now it's going to try and do this. And it's going to go into this whole thing. It's like, nope, it just ended like perfect. That's like, all it needed to do. I loved it. Four star movie for me. Zach, you saw this too. What do you think of Marcel Shell? So I was not familiar with Marcel Shell. Apparently this was a series of uh, YouTube. Oh, neither was I. Neither was I. Right. YouTube shorts that came out about 10 years ago when Jenny Slate and Dean were actually married. So on one hand, you actually have two kind of meta commentaries going on in this movie because Marcel does become a social media phenomenon just like he did in real life. And you have the relationship between Jenny and Dean. Dean in this movie is basically a divorcee. And, uh, you know, apparently they're still friends in real life. So they collaborated on this movie. So, um, you know, that's kind of interesting to think about in one way. Um, I think the stop motion in this movie is really cool. I read about how they did it. There's a big article in the New York Times about it. And they kind of talked about how because of the, the mockumentary aspect it makes you think that everything was improvised, right? Or extemporaneous. But of course it wasn't because you can't do that with something as intricate as stop motion animation. So they actually basically shot it twice. They shot uh, basically the live action minus the uh, stop motion Marcel. And then they shot this. Then they, so they sort of acted and gave their dialogue. And then they actually uh, did the animation afterwards, making sure that the mouth movements and the body movements aligned with the dialogue. And then I guess kind of you know green screened it in i don't think green screen but you know basically keyed it in using uh, post-production um kind of a cool effect because it actually looks pretty seamless there are a few moments when you can kind of tell that it's a little bit fragmented like animated style but it actually looks pretty um pre pretty uh con congruous uh you know um i did not love the story of this movie i thought it was probably overstaying its welcome. It probably would have worked better as a 10 minute short or a five minute short. Um, I feel like the profundity of this movie sort of boils down to Marcel being a cute shell because he's small. Um, and uh, he kind of goes at various times from being amusing to cloying um, and a bit annoying. Um, but like Terry said, I liked how the movie kind of stayed grounded in the world that he was living in. I thought Isabella Rossellini gave a very good vocal performance. I, I liked her voice quite a bit. Um, it's too cutesy at times, but I think that's trying to serve the adult audiences of this movie. It's an A24 movie, um, which is kind of curious. I don't know if the world really needed this movie. Uh, but as Hannibal says to Clarice, um, the world is better, I guess, with it in it. So I'm giving it a reluctant three stars. It's not really my kind of movie. It's too cutesy. And yet I do admit that um, the people in the audience loved it. Um, and I think, it, it, you know, I'm glad that movies like this uh, are, are made and financed by A24. I wish it was a little bit harder edged. But uh, we're not going to get, you know, an Adrian Lyne R-rated Marcel the Shell. I mean, that's what I'm really talking about. Um, but, uh, nonetheless, it was, it was cute and passable by no means four stars. And I do feel like if Todd were to see this movie, he'd really love it. I think my reaction is similar to the way that, 
uh, Todd and I disagreed about where the wild things are. Like I can understand people really loving it, maybe for some sense of nostalgia a little bit or growing up like the Marcel character does in this movie. I'm just I'm just too bitter and hard edged and cynical and alcoholic to enjoy it. Yeah, I, it's much more than just a gimmick of an of a cute little shell on the screen. I mean, he he has mm. such a unique way of seeing the world and a unique uh, an, a unique perspective on so many different things. And uh, I agree, it, it it's cute in any way, shape, or form. Therefore, it's uh, too cute for Zach. So mm-hmm. he's gonna he's gonna have trouble with it. There there's no it, there's no controversy to it. There's it it's just a feel good movie. So Zach has to hate it. I mean, when Marcel says stuff like, this is like the part in um, Sister Act when Whoopi Goldberg was leading the nuns. To, it's like, there's no point of that line except to wink at the audience and make all the adults laugh, you know, which Terry's doing right now. So I applaud the movie. But like, I could, I don't know. To me, that seems sort of telegraphed. Such a clever line, though. <laughs> like, I like the craftsmanship of the movie more than the movie itself, if that makes sense. I, I would say I would say the dialogue is more clever than cute. I would Marcel say it's more is, cute clever. But Marcel is line. cute. The, the the dialogue is clever, and that's why it works. So why is it called Marcel the Shell with shoes on? Obviously he's a shell with shoes, but like is that any way other than to try to like be like SpongeBob or something? It's like obviously his pants are square. He's a sponge. His pants are gonna be square. He's a he's a shell that walks around. He obviously, he's got shoes. Why is it called Marcel the shell with shoes? There's there's no reason other than what you just said. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. I do I, want to see it. I it is playing nowhere anywhere. That's cool I'm, that you guys at least got to see it though. I'm considering yeah. putting Leslie Stahl in my best supporting actress uh, nominees this year. But, oh yeah, yeah. I see the director is going to direct a live action version of Lilo and Stitch as his second movie. So there we go. Wow. Now we're talking. There is that. (sighs) All right. Well, yeah, that is, uh, that is Marcella shell with shoes on. If you can find it. I mean, even, even cynical Zach had to reluctantly give it three stars because like I said, it's kind of, it's kind of irresistible in a lot of ways. I gotta say, I also still have some PTSD from downsizing, which may impact how I view this movie. How did they get Marcel to talk so loudly? Because he's so small. There was like no lavalier mic or anything like that. I, you know, there's a certain level of disbelief you have to have in there. I guess so. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, if it's playing anywhere near you, uh, you should check it out because it it's a uh, it's. I think it's really something quite special. Is it is it higher than Top Gun Maverick? on your movie on your movie list no no okay well, he I hasn't seen it, it five times in theaters so that's true that's we'll true. see <laughs> it, it is one that as soon as i can watch it at home i think i think it will be one that'll be played quite a bit and i think my kids would really like it too i okay. sat next to a five-year-old watching it he was really bored he, he left I, a couple times and not not really having it but it i was is one of like five movie. i was on like five in the theater but that's what you get for seeing Marcel the shell with shoes on at 930 on a Friday night. It's time now to move on from that into our our main topic of the day. And that is it's deep dive time. And we're going back 20 years to one of Zach's all time favorites, Punch Drunk Love. 
wanted to ask you something because you're a doctor, right? Yeah. I don't like myself sometimes. Can you help me? Mary, I'm a dentist. Hi, this is Georgia. This is Barry Egan. So what do you do, Barry? I have my own business. Uh, we have a non-breakable handle. Let me demonstrate for you. Uh, direct, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson and starring the one and only Adam Sandler. We're going to start this out with some trivia. And we're going to do that a little differently than we normally do because uh, Zach loves this movie and has seen it a ton. And Todd and I, before this week, had seen it once. So uh, we are... Todd and I both have some questions that we are going to ask Zach and uh, and we're going to see how this goes and see how much of an expert Zach truly is. So, Todd, how many questions do you have? Five. I have five questions also. Um, let's see here. You go first. You ask your uh, so you ask question one and I'll ask my question one and we'll kind of go back and forth. OK, uh, what is the building number of Barry's work? One oh one oh one. That is correct. Nice, nice. Uh, so that is first... an actual location, by the way, in Chatsworth, California, that every time I get, it's literally about maybe two miles from Grandpa Sam's house. I really want to go there someday and take a picture. I always just forget <laughs> to. Yeah, you need to do that. All right. My first question is, what time does the mechanic shop open? Eight. That is correct. What Vegas casino did Barry make a sale with? The Rio? Yeah, that's correct. My, my next question is, which casino ordered the dice plungers? So, uh, Not the Excalibur, sadly. <laughs> I, guess, I guess we get to go back to Todd. Uh, why did Barry have a hammer according to his sister? Because he was building a fort. He's building a doghouse. Oh, building a doghouse. That's right. All right, half point. All right. <laughs> it's not that's not that's not a half a point. Obviously, he's building something out of hammer. <laughs> I award you no points. I said he he builds a fort, you know, like like doghouse is not a fort. This is 40. Okay. A simple wrong would have been fine, but okay. Um my next question, uh, what two healthy choice items does Barry look at in the grocery store before opting for the pudding? Uh teriyaki chicken. <clears throat> that is correct. Uh, I don't know the other one. That's a good question. What's the other one? A can of chicken noodle soup. Nice. They don't show that though, do they? Yeah, they do. Okay. Yep. He walks through and he looks at the TV dinner of teriyaki chicken and then goes, goes, uh, and finds the chicken noodle soup and then he goes and gets the pudding. Nice. Uh, what award did this movie win at Cannes? <laughs> Best director. That's correct. Somehow. <laughs> I mean, this was in the era when they gave Elephant the Palm Door and Fahrenheit 9-11, so... But director is time. not... This is not the movie that wins director at Cannes. <laughs> well, no, no. Okay, we'll talk about that. I have some theories about that, but okay. Good question. All right, my next question. What is Barry's credit card expiration date? Uh, 0504. That is correct. That, that, that is impressive. That. I that was impressive. contemplating writing down his social security number, but I didn't think you guys were actually going to ask that. <laughs> Uh, what is the spine number on the Criterion? Oh, that's a great question. I don't actually own Ooh. the Criterion, believe it or not. I'm going to guess 813. Uh, it was 843. Oh, that's, that's closer <laughs> than... <number> wow. 
Okay. I'm, I'm going to give you a third of a point. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I should have gotten a half point for the hammer question, but okay. All right. Uh, my last question. Um, while Dean and Barry are on the phone, how many times does Dean say the word shut? And how many uh, times does Dean say the word up? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> it's inter interesting wording. It sounds like he maybe says shut, 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 shut up. So I'm guessing more shuts than up. I'm going to go 12 shuts and eight ups. Wait, oh, can so, I guess? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to guess uh, 14 shuts and like six ups. Shut up! Shut up! Shut! 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 Shut up! Are you threatening me? Yes. That wasn't good! You were dead! It's 13 and 9. Zach was nice. so close. I thought he said shut way more times than up. No, it, it's he it just goes on that run where he says it like four times in a row. Shut, 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 shut up. Every other time there's a there's a shut. Maybe a couple words in between shut and up, but that's the only time he just says shut. That was impressive. That was impressive. Twelve and eight is a is a like uh, that's. I might give you three quarters of a point to. There we go. Uh, so three quarters plus together. a third is what, Terry? I don't know math, <laughs> but it sounds like I'm at like seven point nine two points. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Zach, you're the one that picked this for us. Tell us uh, about Punch Drunk Love and why it's one of your favorites. Well, it's, I mean, it's Punch Drunk Love, first of all. Ne needless to say, it's a great movie. It's, I believe, according to our website, I have it ranked number 58. I think after watching it last night, I would maybe put it even higher. Um, you know, we've, uh, I've, I've assigned some interesting 2002 movies so far, Minority Report, and uh, what was the other one we did? 25th Hour. Um, this is the one that, to me, is, has held up the best so far. And I think in part it's due to the fact that we all love Adam Sandler on this podcast, although Todd wasn't inexplicably not a fan of Hustle. But uh, he's become America's greatest actor. And uh, even when he's not working with the homeless rabbis, the Safdie brothers. But uh, this movie has aged so well in so many respects. I mean, on the one hand, we have Adam Sandler as our greatest actor. This is a movie that I think sort of introduces anxiety cinema. It's a movie about someone with some disorder on the social emotional spectrum, whether it's autism or Asperger's or social anxiety. I think in the COVID era, you know, that has aged very well. We can all appreciate that and respect that. Um, this is a movie where Paul Thomas Anderson, sort of the wunderkind of the late 90s, just kind of wanted to do his own sort of indie thing with uh, Adam Sandler. And that, of course, raised a lot of eyebrows when this movie was announced. I remember seeing the trailer for it in like late summer 2002. I didn't think the trailer looked that great. Um, it certainly didn't look like a film that would win at Cannes. And the fact that it was 90 minutes long coming, after, coming off of the three-hour behemoth that is Magnolia, it just sort of defied all expectations. And, uh, you know, I, like, I generally like when directors do that. Now, here's the, kind of the, the quiet thing about this movie back in 2002, because you guys didn't see it in 2002, right? So right. Into, this is something that no one talks about with this movie. But one of the reasons why people were skeptical about this movie is that in summer 2002, Steven Soderbergh kind of did the same thing as Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, he's a serious director. He's coming off of Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, Ocean's Eleven. He did Full Frontal, which was his version of Punch Drunk Love. And that movie sucked. 
So I think there was a little bit of, I mean, I'm, you know, P.T. Anderson, Steven Soderbergh, different directors, but there was a little bit of like, okay, are we really going to let these great young auteurs sort of do their thing with limited budget and sort of a minimalist aesthetic? And to me, Punch Drunk Love just hit it out of the park. I loved this movie. I still identified with the Barry character. Um, I identified with his social anxiety and his quirkiness. This was the first Adam Sandler movie that, you know, like Ebert, I just totally uh, was engrossed by and just loved. Um, I love the, 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 the cinematography, the music. The fact that he's wearing the same stupid suit the whole movie is fascinating. I love that this movie does it, it shows, but it doesn't always tell. Like there are things that happen in this movie that never get any explanation. Like, do we ever know why the harmonium was dropped off there? No. I mean, do we ever know uh, what Barry is doing in his job? Like, do we ever, ever understand the root cause of his neuroses and his trauma? No. Uh, but it's great for that. I think if this movie were made uh, 20 years later, uh, a director would have taken those issues much more literally and tried to do a whole lot more with this movie. Um, and uh, I just, I love that uh, they just had fun with it. They kind of did a minimalist thing. This movie was shot for $25 million, which was shocking to me when I read that. It doesn't look like it's that expensive. I'm guessing a lot of that money went to Adam Sandler. P.T. Anderson did say that he had to reshoot the first two weeks of this movie, which is kind of interesting. But I think this movie just finds all the right notes in all the right places. Great performances also by, uh, you know, Emily Watson. Uh, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest in peace. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the shut, 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 shut up scene is on, I think, all of his sort of highlight reels. And Luis Guzman is great in it, too. It's quietly, my maybe not so quietly, my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It's it's not the most sensationalistic, but that's why I like it the best. And uh, we weren't going to go 20 years after this movie without deep diving it. I know it's not a movie with a huge cast, and I know I love it more than you guys. But, I mean, there is so much to talk about with this movie, I think. I think it is the least PTA of all of PTA's movies. Like, it... Every every other one of his movies, you can kind of see some sort of of like line through of like okay, I can see what he's doing. I can see his voice de developing and things like that. I don't really agree with that. I mean, there's there's certain stylistic things that are that are somewhat. There will be blood and inherent vice of the zero in common. Like I mean, that's he, a good he, point. He has a he has a few that are just like outside of his comfort zone. But are, and, okay, keep going. And, and the, but this one, this one is very much like out there and something completely different. This almost felt like, uh, like uh, when the Coens had Fargo and they followed it up with Big Lebowski. The, yeah, this is comparison. this is PTA's Big Lebowski. This is his. Hey, I can do whatever I want. Let's make this tiny little, like rom com almost about this this guy with all these nervous tics and 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 all this stuff. Um. I think I maybe saw this once and I had get, I gave it two and a half stars. And I think the reason I gave it two and a half stars is I honestly didn't remember that much about it when I gave it that rating. Like it was one where I'd watched it. And then once I like, Oh, I, I should rate all the movies I've seen. I, I rated it off of that. Um, I, I'm, I changed my rating. It's a, it's a solid three star movie, almost three and a half star. It is because a, a lot of what you said, it leaves so much like, so much open uh and it's just so quirky it's so it's so odd and adam sandler's character is just so unique in so many different ways 
uh, and you don't, you just don't see that. And, and uh, it, especially Adam Sandler, this was, I mean, this was a huge step out for him. You never saw anything like this before, uh, before this happened. And, uh, and all of a sudden you see this kind of performance out of him and it, it just blows you away. And then of course you have Philip Seymour Hoffman doing whatever, whatever he wants to do. And I, I think he's having more fun in this than almost any other movie he did. Um, Emily Watson is perfect in, in this role. And, and she, it's a shame she doesn't, she didn't get more when she was in her prime around that time. And she's not really doing much anymore either, but um, she was always amazing. She's always been amazing in everything she's done. And yeah, this, it's a, it's a great movie. It really is. Yeah. I, I like this movie a lot when I first saw it. I don't remember actually when I actually saw it, but I did put it in my top 10 of 2002. I don't know if it officially is a 2002 top 10 movie. We should probably revamp that entire thing at the end of this year, because we're going to talk about a lot of these movies, but, uh I, I do like this movie a lot. And I, I love Adam Sandler. I love that era of Adam Sandler. I was listening to a podcast with Paul Thomas Anderson, and he was saying how the the reason why he wanted to cast Adam Sandler in, a, in one of his movies was he was watching his SNL sketch of the Denise show. And he's like, he was watching that. And it's just Adam Sandler sitting there on the phone. And then he uh, gets his father on the line and he starts screaming on the phone. And he, he said, you could look in his eyes and know that there was something psychotic in there. And he's like, that was really interesting to me. And I had to write a movie about him or, or for him, basically. And that, which I, I think is awesome. I, I've gone back and watched some of those sketches. Like, yeah, like Sandler absolutely explodes in those. And you can see a lot of that as inspiration for this movie. And it, it is a really short movie. It's, yeah, like it's it's less than 90 minutes. Because um, there's somehow like 11 minutes of credits for this movie, which is really weird. But um PTA had to do something short after he did his big epic Magnolia, similar to Wong Kar Wai making, you know, uh, Chunking Express because he couldn't get Ashes of Time done and what whatnot. It's like it's 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 a long lineage of these kind of movies in uh, in film, but it's a great movie. It is. Uh, I don't know how rewatchable it actually is. There there are parts that kind of drag, but like the parts that are good are like really really good. And uh, and Sandler Sandler's amazing, and it's it's something also just just watch him do his thing because he really rarely gets the opportunity to do this. I think more people now know that he is able to do these kind of movies in his sleep, but he is um, this is as good as someone has written for him. Yeah, it's really funny that you brought up the SNL thing. So this movie has been such a huge part of my life. You know, I loved it the moment I saw it. It's always been in my top one hundred the last twenty years of my life. I have never seen the Denise show until this morning. And that is Barry Egan. Like that, that is absolutely Barry Egan. And you forgot part of PTA's quote, which was, I mean, he loved the rage in it. And Phil Hartman was the voice of his father, RIP Phil Hartman. But he specifically said he loved how Sandler's eyes, you could see the whites of his eyes. And then when he went into rage, you couldn't see any white in his eyes. And that is so true if you watch that clip. By the way, great appearance, early appearance by uh, Nicole Kidman in that as well um, as his possible new love interest. But uh, 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that Ebert said about this movie, which I think is partially true, although not totally true, is that basically, if you look at it, Sandler's basically playing uh, Happy Gilmore or Bobby Boucher or Billy Madison or Little Nicky, but it's just a serious kind of art house movie. It's sort of the same character. He has the same sort of hangups. He has the same sort of freakouts. Why are you people talking to me? You know, that sort of stuff. By the way, uh, good Sandler impersonation is Jimmy Fallon's impersonation of Adam Sandler on SNL uh, Celebrity, Celebrity Jeopardy. Jeopardy. That was yeah. one of my favorite Sandler impersonations. Uh, but anyway, um, I don't know if I entirely agree with Roger. That was certainly a big reason why I got into this movie, though, was that Roger finally embraced Sandler. And after that felt like a breakthrough moment because right after uh, Punch Rock Love came out, Roger gave thumbs up to like every Adam Sandler movie, not not um, not anger management, but he gave thumbs up to Spanglish, Fifty uh, First Dates. Uh, I think he liked Click more than most people. Um, and one of the great unanswered questions in my life is, what would Roger have thought of Uncut Gems? And there's no question he would have given it four stars. But I think that the larger point is, this is the movie that introduced serious Adam Sandler to the world, and I think he's one of our best actors. And I never thought after seeing this movie that he would ever reach heights higher than punch drunk love he did but this is this was the, the where we were at least i saw the first signs of acting genius well in in big daddy he shows that he can do drama and i mean that is a straight comedy but like, there are moments in there when it is i mean he is heartbreaking to watch yeah i i would agree with that like i think i think in retrospect like i, I feel that way about the wedding singer like when you watch him sing that song about you know getting his heart broken leaving me melancholy you know that song like that that has like great dramatic elements to it as well and uh you know he i think he he's a great romantic lead in this movie too you know i think it's very realistic that emily watson would fall in love with him that would kind of she would kind of stalk him you know and there may be other reasons for that too but like I think he's absolutely charming, and and I would agree that I I thought Fifty First States he was also very charming, and and when he tries, there might be no one better. It's it's one of the great tragedies of his career that he did so much shit, particularly after this movie. Well, and it's it's when he does his own stuff that that everyone hates it. It's when he and uh, it's when other people come to him and say, "Hey, I've got this project for you," that he does something that's great, which is is kind of interesting. Yeah, he, must he, know he, he now just that. is like he throws out, you know, yeah, I went to the Strasbourg school and all that. It's like <laughs> I don't think anybody knew that at the time. Like he's a he's a classically trained actor, but he doesn't really want to do that, or he doesn't think he's good enough to do that. But he really is. It, it it's it is sort of fascinating to think about, like especially a lot of the a lot of the roles that he's done, uh, pretty much like Rain Over Me and on. Like he's got probably a handful that are like this is not something that he would normally do, but he can. And I feel like it probably is easy for him, but he's great at it. And then he does Jack and Jill. And that's my boy. Yeah, and because, I mean, that that's fun for him. But I think this is easy the hateful, for him. No, the, 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 what's the hateful six? The, or the or, uh, ridiculous, the ridiculous, ridiculous six, six and the cobbler. Hubie Halloween. <sighs> yeah. Rough. You don't mess with the Zohan. But comedy is like, com Chuck and I don't Harry. know. Okay, we'll see. I, I feel like he makes those movies just to like get the paycheck, and then, I mean, a lot of a lot of actors do this. You make the movies to get the paycheck so that you can then do the stuff you want to do. But I don't think he wants to do these kind of things. Like, uh, like I, I read that when he was leading up to this movie, 
like he had he said he watched magnolia for the first time he said this this director is too good for me i'm going to screw up his movie why does he want to do this you know and it's like because that's what he thinks of himself he thinks like okay i can do these movies i'll make i'll make billions of dollars and uh it'll that'll be that but then he makes you know the Meyerwood stories or you know uncut gems and he's like i mean he's he's next level and i don't know he doesn't he doesn't look at himself like that and like there's also so that self-hatred is probably a little bit like you know autobiographical adam sandler and then of course there's also like a little bit of george simmons in adam sandler right i mean george simmons's career is adam sandler's career they are almost the same character i mean he did right. this he did stand up just like george simmons did you know I, um i mean there's no like leslie mann in his life but like there's there's like tinges of regret and and an acknowledgement and recognition that uh he does that he's in crap but you know i i think he justifies it at least at this point in his career because it makes his kids laugh you know it's like the chris farley song about how they laugh at chris his kids laugh at chris farley on youtube you know I mean that that sort of justifies it. it's just it's just maybe a you know happenstance that he also happened to give two of the greatest performances in the 21st century cinema that, that he's capable of that range yeah i remember hearing him say he's like yeah my, my kids love watching my comedies but the one i don't like them watching is zohan because i got my ass in that out in that like all the time he's like it's really awkward i walked out in my daughter watching that with her friends it was really weird <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into our Mount Rushmore that we have prepared for uh, this week. And it's in honor of everything we've been talking about with Adam Sandler. And that is uh, comedians going dramatic, right? That That's what we're talking about here. Comedians going dramatic. Uh, best, uh, best moments of that. Now, can we say for a non-negotiable Adam Sandler... But the question is, which which Adam Sandler? Or do we I mean, have, do we have to specify? I think it's Uncut Gems. Yeah, right. I mean, the only case for this movie is that it, it preceded Uncut Gems. But, you know, it's uh, it's obviously... And it's billed as a comedy. Right, this movie definitely has more yeah. comic beats. I mean, too. it got it got the... He, he got nominated at the Golden Globes for actor and comedy musical. So, But the Golden well, Globes well, is so not... The a, Martian. I was gonna say it's not a great, uh, it's not a great judge of, of that, uh, of that category there. Uh, okay, so Zach, you're gonna go first on submitting your uh, submission to Mount Rushmore here. Okay, uh, I'm gonna go with Whoopi Goldberg in The Color Purple because, mm-hmm. like Adam Sandler, I think that was sort of an out of nowhere performance. First of all, that was Whoopi Goldberg's film debut, mm-hmm. um, and. It was not some little, you know, nothing movie that was sort of just the director having fun for 90 minutes. I mean, this was a huge tentpole project with Steven Spielberg at the height of his powers, a movie that got famously nominated for for 11 Academy Awards, including Whoopi Goldberg, and a movie that I think, um, even though it hasn't aged perfectly, still her performance as Celie in that movie is the best thing, well, her and Oprah, those are the best performances in that movie. You could almost put Oprah, I guess, in a category of her own. Um, but uh, Whoopi Goldberg was was amazing in that. And it's kind of unusual that she hasn't really done a whole lot of dramatic roles since then. Um, she did this really good movie with Sissy Spacek 
called The Long Walk Home a few years later that I've always thought was a really underrated movie. But I wish he would do more dramatic movies. And uh, I think that's that's the definition of comedic actors successfully transitioning into drama, at least for one movie. But you're going to get it. She's playing Emmett Till's grandmother this year. So I like it. Well, she did win an Oscar about five years later for Ghost, which was. But that was a that was a comedic role, though. She also had this other movie called Sister Act. I don't know if you've heard of it. You know, Marcel the Shell is a fan of Sister <laughs> Act. But just to be cute to the audience, you know, so everybody over 35 can laugh. Well, I am over 35 now, so I, I laughed quite hard at that moment. You're almost a man. You're almost 40. Uh, I'm almost I'm almost a man. Almost a man. All right, Todd, you're next. Well, I mean, I assume we're not including TV, right? So um, I guess, well, I mean, cause I don't know. Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to include TV, but I mean, there could be a couple that I would really like. I'm going to go with a movie that we actually did do a deep dive of. And I, I, I thought that we might've done this category then, but we didn't. It's Marlon Wayans in Requiem for a Dream. Great pick. Cause that, that is as that far out movie. of a casting choice as you could possibly come up with at that time. Cause he was only doing like the stuff with his brother's, he was he was making like slapsticky kind of like weird movies in the nineties. He was sort of a stand-up comedian. Record for Dream is as dark as a movie as ever has been made. And uh I think he's really, really good in it. He fits into that world as well as Ellen Burstyn and Jared Leto, which is fascinating to me. I, I've always thought that he was good enough to be nominated for Best Sporting Actor. And uh, yeah, Marlon Wayans. I, I wish that he would try to do something like that again, but I really don't think he's done anything close. That's a good call. That's a good call. Yeah, I mean, like like Adam Sandler and Whoopi Goldberg, that was just an unexpected performance too. And I think I feel like we did a ranking of like unexpected performances where maybe there's some overlap with this list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm last. There's some good ones here that I've written down that I want to. Yeah, I, I, I sort of left the layup, but I don't know if you're going to yeah, go yeah. with it. Well, I I want to. I I think if you were if you're talking television, I my guess is you were wanting to go with Hugh Laurie and House or Brian Cranston or Cranston. I was I was thinking Bob Odenkirk or Jason Bateman. Oh gosh, those are good ones too. <laughs> well, we just came up with a Mount Rushmore of uh, television performances. Yeah, but they've they've work. done dramas though. I mean, the thing about Wayne Kirk and... never done drama before Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad for that matter. Bateman a little bit. He was in that one like uh... disconnect. Okay, yeah, and he was in that. What was the what was that movie? Uh, I don't know. He was like an, he was in some sort of war movie. I don't remember what that was called. With, no, and I'm not going to come the, up with it. The naughty spelling words movie wasn't funny. It was just depressing. So we could qualify that as a drama too. Is it just I'll look up what I was thinking of. What's the, the the director who's the actor in like Friday Night Lights? What's that guy's name? Peter Berg. Yeah, Peter. The Peter Berg war movie that he made. Uh, oh, the Kingdom. The, the Kingdom. Kingdom. Odin Kirk is in Kingdom? No, Bateman. Bateman's in the Kingdom. Oh yeah, he is. That's right. I, I thought Hugh Laurie is a great one too because I yeah, mean, that was... one I didn't think of. That that is absolutely the number one because he was like a sketch drama. comedian 
until he uh, until he got the role in House. Well, same with Odenkirk. So what's your choice, Terry? All right, my choice. I think I'm gonna go Jim Carrey. The question is which That's performance? Right I'm because I don't say the majestic. Come on, it's got to be I'm, the one that he was nominated for his Golden Globe for drama, right? Like the other ones were still considered comedies. What? What? Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine the, and Man on, Man on the Moon. Man on the Moon, like that's the that's the one I I think his best performance is Man on the Moon. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna go Jim Carrey, Man on the Moon. Um, that's a comedy. <laughs> is that the that's a comedy? No, yeah, the Truman Show was the drama that he was. Truman Show for. was a he won drama. We'll go, we'll go with the Truman Show. I think his best performance is is Man on the Moon. I'm, because I'm not gonna argue just, with that. He just is insane in how he transforms into. Andy Kaufman there, but again, he's playing a comedian, but a very different kind of comedian. Um, the Truman Show, I, I don't know. I, I think his more most transformational and showing something different are what he does in Eternal Sunshine and in The Majestic. But we can go with the Truman Show because it's the first time we saw just what depths he could go to, um, and what type of uh, what type of performance he could give. The other one I was debating with is I kind of wanted to go with Will Ferrell for Stranger Than Fiction. Because I think that is a very a very different performance for him, and uh, and showed a different side to him, kind of similar to what Jim Carrey showed in the Truman Show. But Jim Carrey is is much better at it than Will Ferrell is. Yeah, I had Will Ferrell written down for Everything Must Go, which which is a true straight drama performance. Yeah. I mean, the, I have a I have a decent list of honorable mentions. We should have made this power rankings, honestly. Yeah, the other the other one I had written down, um, I'd kind of forgotten we were doing this, so I just kind of writ- wrote down a few off the top of my head. The other one I had written down was Bill Murray in Lost in Translation. Hugh Laurie played Jasper in One Hundred and One Dalmatians. That's a yeah. comic role, so I think you can't strictly. Well, I guess he would be a comic comedian doing a dramatic role. Okay, never mind. Yeah, I, he was I, a I he was up. a comedian. <laughs> Like, like he had he had his own British sketch comedy show called A Bit of Fry and Laurie that was on TV for quite a while, um, and uh, yeah. I just I don't know. The, I think House is too much of a comedy drama. I mean, Requiem for a Dream and Color Purple are are dramas. Nobody is going to deny that. The Truman Show is probably closer to a drama than it is a comedy. And that's why I like to say the majestic because I don't the think majestic, the Truman Show is that funny. The Truman Show isn't funny. That's the reason why it's good. It has moments that you laugh in. I I, I kind of get what he's saying, but it does have have lighter moments. And that's why I was thinking the majestic. That's why I always say the majestic's the best. The best example of it is because it is the one Jim Carrey movie that there's not any lightheartedness in there. Like there's uh, none of those moments where it's like, oh, yep. Yeah, there's How Jim about Carrey. we just all come to a consensus that we'll pick Jim Carrey for the number twenty-three? I mean, that's really where this mm-hmm. argument, this conversation is going. That's the wow. clear. That's the clear winner. The one I, I a couple I was thinking of uh, Sarah Silverman and I Smile Back, which was nominated for a SAG award. Yeah. Like that was out of nowhere. What about that, the one that she did with Seth Rogen? Yeah, the Sarah the... Polly movie. With Michelle Williams, yeah. yeah. Well, Sarah, Seth Seth Rogen and Michelle, uh, not Michelle Williams, but Sarah Silverman could have been both considered for that movie. And she did a nude scene for that movie, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I'm not remembering the title of that movie, yeah, but I, I did see it. Um, 
I also wrote down Vince Vaughn and Jared Cross Concrete because I always have to mention that movie. Uh, Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader in the Skeleton Twins, which I kind of want to just say them That's anyway. A comedy. No, it's not. That is not it's a comedy a, at all. That's a very sad it's borderline movie. comedy. Uh, Steve Carell and Foxcatcher. That's, That's a good one. Uh, yeah, and then the TV ones I mentioned. So, Yeah, I, had, I wrote down Robin Williams. You could put the number of movies for him, but I, I would go with Insomnia. Um, Rodney Dangerfield for Natural Born Killers which is, I think we've talked about him in that movie. I just, it was a list like this. And then two others that I, I don't know if they really count. I mean, Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, I think a lot of people cite, he wasn't doing strictly, you know, yeah. comedies before then, but that was sort of his first serious movie. And then literally this week on social media, I can't remember where I saw it, but Terry, did you know that when, when Die Hard came out, Bruce Willis was not featured on the merchandise and the promotion for that movie because people the studio considered him a comedic actor and they didn't think people would buy him in an action movie oh interesting well yeah because he was on tv at that point and moonlighting um, yeah moonlighting yeah talking. <clears throat> that is that is fascinating i did not know that it makes sense though take this waltz was the take this waltz. movie. that's right well, I think right. we came up with a pretty good uh, a pretty good power ranking here. Uh, and I, I love all the conversation, or not power ranking, uh, Mount Rushmore. I love all the conversation around it, too. So we've got Adam Sandler for Uncut Gems, Whoopi Goldberg for The Color Purple, Marlon Wayans for Requiem for a Dream, and Jim Carrey for The Truman Show and Eternal Sunshine and The Majestic and The Number 23. Man on the Moon, and of course, The <laughs> Number 23. Was it right. even Dark Crimes? Was that his movie that he basically ended his career oh yeah the one that got zero percent on rotten tomatoes yeah i never saw i love you philip morris was that no that was one a that... comedy that's comedy but that's, that's comedy. really good though it is a good movie all right well let's get into uh some recasting here of punch drunk love if it were to come out today who would play all these different parts and so we're gonna start with barry egan played by adam sandler who would play that today uh, Todd. Uh, so who, I don't know who the modern day Sandler is. That's kind of impossible to figure out. But one person I came across that's in the right age range that has almost no experience doing drama. And I think would be fascinating to see in this kind of role is Aziz Ansari. Mm-hmm. I, I think that he, like, he has the capability in him to explode. And he just hasn't really shown it. I, I, I feel like that there is something behind those eyes that I could see becoming Sandler-ish. And I, I think it'd be fun. That is an interesting pick. That's an ish, interesting one for sure. I wrote down a few different names for this. I wrote down someone like Michael Sarah. That would be interesting. Yeah, um, I was thinking about him too. I wrote down uh, Beck Bennett, uh, former SNL guy. I thought he'd be kind of interesting, but the one I like the most is Sam Richardson. Uh, he's been in a few different things. He's the thing I recognize him the most from is he was like the friend in the tomorrow war. Um, like the, the friend that goes to war with Chris Pratt. Um, he's kind of known as more of a comedic guy, but I think he could play the same type of lovable loser that Adam Sandler plays in this. And I, I, I think it'd be interesting to see him in something like this. 
I vaguely remember that character, so um okay. I can see it work. I can see it work. Zach. Yeah, I I had a real hard time with this one. I I like the Aziz Ansari pick, although I think I'm a little tired of him as an actor. Um I went with Michael Sarah. I, I because it's just it's probably I think the low hanging fruit. I also considered uh, Simon Helberg, Jesse Eisenberg, and Charlie Day. Um, but I think Michael Sarah is the only one that could convey the sheepish persona while being lovable and perhaps annoying at the same time. And he's in the right age range. But he's not going to be scary when he screams. Like Simon Helberg is interesting. Like I like yeah, that choice. I do I, too. That's I want to see the I Simon Helberg Adam Sandler impression. All right, I'll like, go I at si- Simon Helberg, but only if he does um, his Billy Baldwin impersonation midway through the movie to impress <laughs> his girlfriend or or his Ben Stiller. Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> and his Nick Cage, of course. And of course, his Nick. Cage. And a shout out to Annette at somewhere. You know, we know he yes. has a great singing voice <laughs> with music by the Sparks Brothers. Yes. Uh, all right, Lena, played by Emily Watson. Todd, what do you got? Uh, I I ended up saying Anna Paquin. I, I I don't I don't know that this role is that hard to recast. Uh, she has a sort of sweetness to her that she can, that she can do that. And honestly, she doesn't get a whole lot of like high profile roles anymore. It's kind of sad, but uh, I mean Brenda Warner, man wife of Super Bowl MVP Kurt Warner in the exactly. Kurt Warner story. Exactly what I mean. Post True Blood, well, were, she doesn't really get a whole lot anymore. And I, I think this would be an interesting an interesting was, role for her. I was thinking about her too, except I th- she's like almost 40 at this point, and she doesn't have a New Zealand accent anymore. If, if you've seen her in anything the last 20 years, she's lost her accent, sadly. By the way, I was thinking about her and a, and William Miller in a recasting. Of I was Home thinking Home about Home. one that of the William Millers. <laughs> one of the William Millers. <laughs> I like uh, so, that pick. She was. I I had thought about her seriously too, though. So my recasting for Lena is Gemma Arterton. Um, mm, just, just yeah. kind of the uh, a similar a similar vibe to Emily Watson of just kind of this this nice sweet. Um, British dame that would uh that would fit that role well. I don't know who that is. I mean, she's 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 like the only Bond girl you could also say is just sweet. You 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 know what you know what I mean? Like it, it's just yeah. She she, she is one of those faces that you've seen a lot, but she's hardly ever the starring role in anything. But she yeah she would exactly fit. she would fit. Zach. I went with Carrie Mulligan. I'm not proud of it, uh, but I think that that's if we're going if we're going with a strict talk about kind of, low hanging fruit again. Well, <laughs> hey, I'm normally making fun of you for those picks. I don't know these actors that you're mentioning, but uh, I don't feel proud about my Carrie Mulligan pick. I would like to go with someone more outside the box. I just couldn't really think of anyone. Um, I thought about the woman, the the actress who plays uh, the great the great Mrs. Marvel, uh, the the comedian Mrs. Maisel. But she's not British. Oh, um, Rachel Brosnahan. Rachel yeah. Brosnahan. I think she would be interesting, but doing a British accent. I think I think it's important that Lena be British. So I don't know. I feel I like know. Rachel Brosnahan would be more of a Barry. <laughs> like if you're doing a general a female Barry, that 
Oh, I, I would be kind of down for that. But see, well, that's what I like about Rachel Bryan because she's good at awkward, and I feel like Lena's a fairly awkward character as well. All right, Dean, played by the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, Todd. this was the most fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like mine's almost cheating. It's Kieran Culkin. I mean, I, I feel like nice. he's played that role before. He's, I, I think it would slide into that so easily. That that's a that's a good call. Now, now, what would make it even better is if you had like a full. See here, here's what your casting should have been. Now that we see a little where you were going, you should have gone like full like Scott Pilgrim reunion. Cast Michael Sarah as as Barry. Cast mm. Brie Larson as Lena or Mary Elizabeth Winstead if you want to go full Todd, and then Kieran Culkin as Dean. I mean, or Chris yeah. Evans as Dean. Yeah, Chris Evans as Dean. <laughs> That's actually hilarious. That actually is not bad. An unshaven Chris Evans as Dean. I kind of like that actually. <laughs> oh, that would actually be pretty good. I, I might change my pick, but I, is I like he getting my the long hair for that though. Yeah, I, th I think so. The mattress man. I can't picture Chris Evans as a mattress man. <laughs> well, I, my guy has has long hair and could definitely shout "shut up" thirteen times at uh at somebody over the phone, and that's Adam Driver. Yeah, see, I thought about Adam Driver as Barry. That that's that's mm -hmm. the better pick. I mean, Adam Driver could do anything, of course, but he's kind of too really old, could. isn't he, for both of those roles? He's about right for Dean. If he's in his like mid thirties. We could the late thirties. I mean, listen, at Sandler did Jack and Jill. We could do an Adam Sandler where he's both Barry and Dean and Lena. I'd watch yeah. it. All right, Zach, who do you have? I'm shocked that you didn't come up with. Uh, there were two that it, it's obvious. These two, uh, the first is David Harbor, and the other one <laughs> is Peter Dinklage. I don't know who's better, but they're both perfect in every way. Uh, uh, I think yes. Peter so Dinklage is too on the nose. Can so you? I might, I okay. Might just okay. So Peter Dinklage coming up face to face with Michael Sarah. At no point is that going to feel intense. I went with at Simon Helberg. Peter Dinklage and well, even... <laughs> Simon Helberg was something I'd want to watch. Even so, like that still would just be way too funny to think that like you don't know which one's going to explode first. Like it, it would just be too funny. But I appreciate the thought. <laughs> I would watch it. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's that's the end result of this. Is if you would watch it or not. All right, uh, Lance, played by Louis Guzman. Um. Todd, other than obviously young Neil, who would play it in your Scott Pilgrim cast. Of course. Um, who who do you have for Lance? Uh, I mean, this is, a, I don't know why we really recast. This is sort of a thankless role. I said Keenan Thompson. If we're going for SNL people, I, I think <laughs> having him in this, in this world would be kind of fun. It'd be kind of a throwback to when he was uh, doing kind of weird characters with Kel. So uh, I think Keenan would be fun. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, I, I went through and uh, I looked at how old Louis Guzman was and I and I looked up actors that age and uh, the like one of the first names that popped up. I'm like, well, I mean, that is the easiest recasting ever. I mean, if you're going to recast someone to play Louis Guzman at that age, it's going to be Michael Pena. 
Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the exact same age. <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of crazy. So, and uh, and he he's, he's great at he's kind of an actor though to be in that small of a role. Unfortunately, that's the problem. I don't, well, I don't I know. Mean, he's Louis a great Guzman character actor. With, PTA yeah. guy, right? Yeah, but yep. Louis Guzman, you could only do so much with like. Michael Pena, as everybody has said, he should have his own show. He should be an MCU character. He should do whatever. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like that's too too small of a role for too major an actor, major well, who, talent. Who do you have? I went I went in the direction that Todd went, and I went with Horatio Sands. <laughs> I don't know what he's been up to lately, but we need more of him. I like it. I like it. His last role on IMDb was Bachelorette, Barely Attractive Guy. I think that only works, though, if you recast Jimmy Fallon as Barry. Yeah. yeah. How about a Jimmy Fallon as Barry and Nicole Kidman as Lena? Then, I mean, then it's especially if this meeting yeah. art. Like if it was like 10 years ago, maybe. All right. Now, Zach, you also said we're recasting the voice of Georgia. Yes. Which, just the which voice. A, I forgot voice. that Georgia was... Well, I have questions about Georgia. I guess she's seen in the movie. First of all, is she the same as Janice, Janice the Operator? I think so, yeah. right? I never. I don't think I ever understood that until watching it this time. I always thought they were separate characters. Because their voices sound different. Anyway, um, I went The Operator's with, not the same, is she? I don't think so. Well, but she says there's something in the movie that suggests that Janice and Georgia are the same. Well, because because she uh, she answers the phone as the operator later, but like the second, like when or yeah, when he calls near the end of the movie, it's the same. It's Georgia on the phone, but I don't think it was the same. I think it was. I can't. I didn't write down exactly what it was, but there was some line of dialogue that inferred that Janice and Georgia were the same. That she had talked to him. She, that he was the guy that she had talked to on the phone, but not as the operator. But I don't know. I mean, it would make sense because you only see Janice, the operator, in the climactic scene, giving him a haircut at the end. By the way, a lot of a lot of questions about the haircut scene. Anyway. Um, I went with, uh, originally I went with Amy Schumer as the voice of Georgia, but now the more I'm thinking about it, if I want to get kind of, uh, a little bit naughty here, I think I'd go with Jenny Slate. Why not? We know that she's got some serious vocal talent, you know, let's get this, let's get this movie. Uh, let, let's, let's, uh, let's take it up a notch. I like Jenny Slate as Georgia. Nothing, nothing is sexier than getting on a sex hotline and talking to Marcel, Marcel, the shell. I mean, <laughs> Exactly. So Jenny Slate and Charlie Day. There we go. <laughs> well, you, we know you'd give it three and a half stars and call it your number one movie of the year. So that's perfect. All we need Todd. is a we need a reference to uh, uh, Con Air, and then, and then we're set. Todd, did you have a, a voice of Georgia? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's got it's got to be somebody who could do phone sex, and if you're if you're gonna exclude Scarlett Johansson, you're gonna go with Mila Kunis. <laughs> mm. but the, i mean she is way too attractive to play the other version of that that you end up seeing in the movie it's got to be someone way more True. trashy looking so i don't know i i, I couldn't come up with a, a balance between that that was way too well we're just we're mind. just re, we're just recasting the voice yes so the right. voice so. is me the goodness 
and and the one I went with is definitely just the voice as well. And uh, it, it's going off of what we heard in the Batman, and that's Zoe Kravitz. That's good, too. Okay. What if it was like Kiefer Sutherland in Cellular? Or no, the uh, the phone oh, for phone, phone for, for the Rachel Brosnahan version. <laughs> yeah, <there. Yes. laughs> that's that's interesting to think about. Uh, who would Nicolas Cage play? Yeah, I mean, he's Dean, right? Or Dean, Dean. Yes. Shut, 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 shut up. But listen, I mean, if Nicolas Cage played Barry, there could be a scene where he says, "You bitches, <laughs> killing me won't bring back your honey." Uh, no, he's got to be Dean with Simon Helberg as Barry, and yeah. then they have to go face to face. It's like looking in a mirror, only not. Not that's what they would. That's what they <laughs> All right, uh, possibly the most important category of all of them in this one. What does Adam think this movie is about? Oh, I've forgotten this question. Adam I, thinks I've, this I've is got a good one too. Okay, go, go for it, Terry. You're going first. My mindset. My, all right, I wrote down. Uh, guy wakes up next to a girl he doesn't know after a party filled with uh, with uh, spiked punch, only to fall in love with her later. But she's married to Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so it's punch drunk love. Oh, yeah, okay. mine. Mine's going yeah. more off like the 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 individual words. So uh, he like a. Uh, a guy who gets in uh, gets into bar fights with drunks, and he's fighting the charges, but he falls in love with his lawyer, played by Hilary Swank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only one I got is that a, uh, a guy comes to Vegas at the Rio Hotel and unplugs his toilet, but it breaks, and the handle smashes in his face, and he gets all cut up, so he sues Adam Sandler, and his lawyer is played by Hilary Swank. Oh, oh, oh I, I'm sorry. That that was one of the old ones. <laughs> uh, all all good. Well, Adam has not seen this. He was going to be on uh, on our podcast to talk about it today, but he had some work stuff come up, and uh... he's working on getting that bonus to get a, a swimming pool installed. Mm -hmm. That Christmas bonus. Christmas I, comes I was... early. I was going to say he, he was at work and, you know, shit happens, but you know, I didn't say nice. it. I didn't say it, but I was going to. But you were but going to. Yeah. But I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. yeah. Nicely done. All right. That's like picking I... Michael Sarah as Barry. That was low hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he got to go to the gorge to do it, though. I'm, I'm not I'm not complaining uh, too much for him. Uh, Zach, what's the highest war performance? The highest war performance is obviously Adam Sandler for all the reasons that we've already said. I mean, there's a lot of great performances in this movie, but I think it's all sort of a joke to even try to recast this movie. Uh, I mean, the first person I thought of was maybe like Pete Davidson, and yet I think the movie would kind of collapse if it was Pete Davidson. Um, maybe hmm. French Stewart in 2002 would have been interesting, <laughs> but as a mockery of himself. Um yeah, there's there's no one that could do it with both the the off-screen persona and just the shock value of it, but also quietly sort of playing the same character as little Nikki in a way. I mean, it's perfect. There's no it's I think it's actually one of the five highest war performances of all time. I'll I'll go out on the limb. Todd, do you have anybody? Uh, I mean, other than Sandler, I mean, it's I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of those guys that he shows up with that haircut 
And with, with everything about Philip Seymour Hoffman's stature, he has like five minutes in the movie, and you're just like, okay, I'm in. There, there's there's nobody else that could do that like that and leave that kind of impact. He he could have gotten a so supporting much, actor nomination for five minutes. He yeah. could he easily could have he could have William Hurt did that shit. He uh <laughs> he he just like Beatrice he, he has those those moments where he where he where you just see it like it's like there's genius happening there for no reason because that character didn't deserve it <laughs> and that's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, so on the DVD, there's an extra of D&D Mattress Man commercial. Did you guys see this? No. No, because you don't own the movie. Um, but uh, so there's a commercial that PTA shot for D&D Mattress Man. And, yeah, there it is. And he's on the roof uh, playing a guitar. Lots of theories about the band in this movie, too. And as he's playing a guitar, he falls. He jumps onto uh, like four mattresses piled on top of a car and then falls on the ground and injures himself. And there is no way that that is fake. I mean, that is really Philip Seymour Hoffman literally falling to the hard cement with a guitar in his hand getting injured. I mean, that that takes some major cojones. And that was for some stupid deleted... I mean, it's not even a deleted scene. It's just an extra on the DVD. So, I mean, major props to Philip Seymour Hoffman for the, for the dedication. You know, almost the dedication of showing his testicles and Twister. I mean, this is this is a man whose talent was just uh, unmatched. Yeah, uh, if I have to pick, I I mean, my number one choice is Adam Sandler. My number two choice is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, so I don't know. I'll just take one of each of yours. But uh, if I have to pick some, <laughs> if I have to pick something else, uh, I'll I'll speak a little bit about Emily Watson for a little bit because I mean she's kind of the forgotten one in this. However. Like I said before, she was kind of perfect in every role she got. And I don't know what happened to her, why she doesn't really work much anymore. But uh, she is she's brilliant in this in this in this small role. And she kind of has this perfect look of being someone who uh, is cute, but also kind of you can tell is kind of this like average look to her at the same time. And and kind of makes it the and like it's not like it's it's not like Jay Baruchel and she's out of my league looking at you know the girl who's interested in him. It, it it's definitely something that fits and it matches and it works and she's charming and she's it it's just kind of this perfect this perfect match for everything going on there. Nice. So if I have to pick someone other than the two you've picked, I'll say Emily Watson. Now I would also say quietly, Robert Smigel is pretty high war in this movie as yeah, well. As that's a good call. The brother-in-law who's a dentist, Walter the dentist. First of all, one of the great dentists in film history, along with uh, Helen Hunt's husband at the end of Castaway and Billy Bob Thornton in that uh, the that one movie, the Coen Brothers movie. Isn't Jennifer but, Aniston a dentist in? Yeah, Marvel in the one with Charlie Day. Horrible bosses, Charlie Day. Um, I was going to say Robert Spiegel because he basically plays the same role in This Is 40. You know, the the, the friend, the male friend who uh, Paul Rudd goes to complain about his life to. This uh, Charlie Day is the great Kinnear of this podcast episode, by the way. I think so. All right. The, uh, Even the... notice that commercials get so <laughs> Mountain Dew. <laughs> I that, haven't taken that, a drink yet. That never fails to get a laugh anytime we're at the Regal Theater. Hey, there's always the, there's always someone behind you that gives the <laughs> yep. All right, the Bill Paxton Memorial Worst Performance of the Film Award goes to Todd. Uh, I mean, I'm saying Emily Watson. I, oh. I, I think wow. 
I think she's just a little boring and it's kind of off-putting because her relationship with Barry is almost like Sheila and Ronnie in Little Children. It's like kind of patronizing. I don't think it really should be like that. She's also sort of playing the same role she does in Red Dragon, which is weird. I don't know. I I don't think it's really that good of a performance. I I don't think any of the performances are really bad, but I think hers is a little off. I don't think she was really the right actress for it. That's sad. That's sad. I do agree, though, that it's kind of a similar performance to Red Dragon. Uh, My worst performance goes to all of the brothers, especially especially the one that like comes out of nowhere and actually punches him in the face. It's like it's like he came from offset. Like he he was he was just like backstage and all of a sudden he comes out of nowhere and just punches him in the face and walks away. And then the one that never got out of the car. Like he it looks like he's in the back of the car and he's laughing at everybody and to, and and even and then gets to stay in the car. Like they're they're all pretty bad. Yeah, I was going to go with the brothers too because curiously they're not even listed on IMDb. I've been scrambling the last two What's their names? Out. Well, it, they were listed in the credits under the brothers, but it's uh, reason, David, Nate, Jim, and Mike D. So. Yeah. I'm actually but I'm actually going to go so someone else, someone who's definitely not listed on IMDb. It's the guy that gets in front of the camera when uh, Adam Sandler's talking on the phone in Hawaii. Right before the phone lights up, when he's re- when he reaches uh, Lena, there's like a guy that gets right in front of the camera and blocks the view. It's like the guy at the end of Apollo 13, you know, the last shot of the movie. It's like some random guy who's out of focus. And it's like, no, get out of the way. You know, I know this is a crowd shot, but you're not the focus of this shot. We want to see uh, we want to see Adam Sandler talking on the phone. But that that says more about how good how good the performances are in this movie that I can't really think of anyone. Because honestly, I think the brothers are actually pretty good in this movie. As are the sisters. All right. Amazing Larry, Big Tim, high roller. Minor character. I don't know what. Yeah. My favorite minor character uh, is uh, Andrew Higgs as a restaurant manager. Yes. Yeah. Good yeah. call. <laughs> He's like that. That one tiny little scene there, and and how he his voice inflection doesn't change, but he goes from, "You just, you just destroyed the bathroom." No, he didn't. Y- yes, you did. No, you have to leave. And to to the to the end where he's like threatening him. It's it's brilliant. It's a, it's such a brilliant moment, brilliant scene, and a brilliant character. He's he's the minor character of the of the film. Zach. So I went with After Eden. That that's the band that's at D and D Mattress because I guess Dean Trumbull is a member of After Eden. They're a Mormon band. Um, and they're a real life band, and uh, I love that they're just like tuning up backstage at the mattress place. Like, are they going to perform at the mattress? Like, or maybe I guess this is their rehearsal space. So it's like a mattress place, rehearsal space, and phone sex operation. Like, it's a very interesting kind of spatial. Anyway, I wanted I wanted more of the band, and um, yeah, that's that's all. I mean, there's a lot of great music in this movie. I'm sure we could have put a put a, put a spot for After Eden and their Mormon music. That's a dumb choice. I don't know. There's not a lot of characters in this movie, <laughs> that, but that I like your character, movie. Terry. That that, that was actually you. a good pick. Odd. Uh, I like Elizabeth, who is one of the sisters. Uh, she's played by Mary Lynn Rajkow. 
Rajascope? Yes, yes. She was also in uh, Little Miss Sunshine, which she, uh, we uh, did a deep dive of. Uh, she she has probably the most to do of all the sisters, and I, I, I think she's sort of a quirky character. I, I'm, I don't know who, who would have played her in like a, the current version, but it would have been interesting to recast that role because I, I think it's kind of a, a tricky little role to play, and I, I think she's a fun character. Yeah, I have some theories about Elizabeth. Well, I'll just say them right now. I think part of what motivates um, Lena to date Barry, okay, because I think some people watch this movie and they think, how is Lena really into Barry? I mean, he's this antisocial guy. He's weird. He wears the same suit. But I think part of it is that Elizabeth must be kind of a bad boss because I think that's in part what motivates her to go out with Barry. Um First of all, she doesn't come to the party, which is very interesting. It was one of my conspiracy theory questions. Why doesn't Lena come to the party? Well, she probably doesn't like Elizabeth that much. And what better way to get get a, you know uh, someone to uh, disrespect someone by dating their sibling who they mercilessly make fun of? So I feel like there's some friction and tension in the Elizabeth-Lena relationship which has nothing to do with the performance, but it is to say that it's an interesting character that maybe could be fleshed out a little bit more, along with her marriage to Walter the dentist, who's the most sympathetic of all the brothers-in-law. I like the brother-in-law that has a snazzy new ride out front. I want to know more about that too. Saw your snazzy new ride. I thought the brothers-in-law looked... Actually, I think the sisters and the brothers-in-law, it was perfect casting as well, even though we don't really ever see them. Th that is also very high war casting because they actually look like they're all related and they look like they could be related to Adam Sandler. All right. Spider stick, man, Billy bats, douchebag, Zach. I'm going to go with, uh, so when they get to Hawaii, I'm going to go with the guy that answers the phone. Jonathan. Damn you. Yeah. I mean, that he's really, choice low too. Fruit, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. The guy, the guy he's from getting the it Sandler in somewhere. Movies. I mean, there shouldn't be a man in her room. I mean, if, you know, if anyone says that about you, that probably means you're, you know, you're at least uh, Burgess Meredith level stick man, you know? Jonathan Loran. Logren? Loran. Logren? Yeah, the guy with the cross eyes from all of his movies, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, he was the the trucker in Kill Bill Volume 1, which I couldn't figure yeah, out. Yeah, and he was, he was oh, in Big gosh. Daddy, and he's I in... That's who he's it was, in yeah. the water boy and he's in everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. I was looking at some of the other some of the IMDb credits of these people. Like um one of them was so the the cab driver in this movie was a real life driver somewhere. And he also played I swore. uh Eddie the bartender <laughs> in Wind Talkers. I'm sorry that, I stole your stick, man. But we, we all he, said the same thing. He, I mean, he's the only one you can go with in a movie full of very poor stick men. It's true. It's true. Well, Dean's right, probably a stick man. Uh, I think that's debatable. I mean, do you think him and Janice slash Georgia? I mean, she's giving him a haircut. There's something to be said for that. Isn't there a haircut at the end of There Will Be Blood? That was something I was thinking about, too. Or like a shave or something. I haven't seen that movie in such a long time. But isn't there some scene where Daniel Day-Lewis is like getting some sort of um, something done to his appearance? Or do I have that totally wrong? I feel like he's I getting like, right? like he's getting sh shaved by someone at the end of the movie. I don't know. All right. Well, <laughs> since we all have the same stick, man, uh, Zach, who's your douchebag? Douchebag in the movie, lots of good candidates here. I think Dean is pretty clearly 
um, the biggest uh, douchebag. But I'll go with a, a more subtle pick, which is DJ Justice, because DJ Justice is making fun of the caller for not knowing how, how to differentiate Confucius from confusion, which I think is a little bit douchey. I mean, he called into your radio show, and apparently you're just some shock jock who makes fun of callers all day and tells it like it is. And I guess that's entertaining to people like Barry, but, you know, I, he's probably like a Howard Stern slash Jeff Bridges in uh, that movie with Robin Williams type shock jock, right? Oh, what movie are you talking about? Yeah, uh, the one, uh, you know, Fisher King. Fisher King, yeah. Yeah. I was getting there. Uh so yeah. uh, with, with douchebag, wh what is the character you most want to punch? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Forgot about that one. That was your idea. <laughs> well, let him, I mean, think, I, let him think about I it. I don't always encourage, I don't encourage violence against women, but those sisters are pretty annoying. I so mean, my douchebag, I, I wrote down all the sisters. Yeah, that's that, my that's, answer for douchebag. That's a good answer as well. <laughs> They're kind of horrible. All right, Todd, what do you have? Uh, my douchebag is Sal, Jorge, and Ernesto, who are the uh, the guys who are like moving pallets around in the warehouse or something. Like they're oh, making yeah. like a huge ruckus, and they're like you can tell they're kind of assholes. They also just stare at Lena when she's asking Barry out. It's super creepy, and uh, I don't know if douchey is really the right word for it. It's just bad. Like those guys, those guys are are not good. They're they're a little they're incompetent. Great. It's kind of yeah. like that episode of The Office when Michael goes into the, you know, packaging and knocks everything over. You know what I'm talking about, Terry. Like, uh, you know, when when Daryl tells him to get out of here because you're ruining our, our workplace. I mean, yeah. they seem a little yeah. incompetent. Pretty much. Pretty much. Why did they? Why does he need so many employees to make uh, toilet plungers? Seems like there was a lot of people there. Well, obviously, and obviously badly, so. and obviously in incompetent, right? Because the toilet plungers are breaking. Mm -hmm. all right todd best scene of the movie i really like the scene where barry is running away from the brothers like it, i don't know it's, it's kind of a weird scene it's shot really weird like he jumps over a railing and then he appears like 10 feet to the left and then he keeps running it, there, there's something wrong with the editing of that scene but something about that scene is really cool because he is like really going for it in that and uh and then it ends with basically like 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 dude where the you going we know where you live and then he just like stops running he's like oh yeah that's true i probably should just stop trying it's it's it's, it's kind of a good it's a really good scene and it, it, it's it, it actually has some realism in there and it's uh, a paul thomas anderson scene where someone's running i mean that's the important thing right there's nobody running and there will be blood or phantom thread that's not true there's scenes of that i thought there's a it's some scene in there will be blood when paul dano is running a young paul dano maybe now, the real question is, why isn't there a scene with Tom Cruise running in Magnolia? I mean, that is just a missed opportunity. True. Well, well, true stickmen don't need to run. They can take their time. And Frank T.J. Mackey's on the Mount Rushmore stickmen, so. True, but he, he also, Tom Cruise runs in everything. And Paul Thomas Anderson has someone running in everything, so. Uh, my best scene, I mean, if we're not going to go with the phone call. Uh, because what that, phone call? There's a million phone calls in this movie. The, the whole movie's the, a freaking the, phone the call. Dean, the Dean Barry phone call. Okay. Uh, the, the well, that was the one I was thinking of. That's that's the one I was thinking of. Uh, it, I'm the other one I really liked. I like the everything that happens in the apartment after, after the first date, of how he walks her up to her door, 
and they, they have that kiss and then he's leaving just like begrudging everything he just said at the door and then gets a call as he's walking out the door and then forgets what room she's in and is running down every hallway trying to figure it out and when he finally does it just they just open the door and kiss again like that's just it's just a great scene yeah i want to know how he went out the emergency room do- door but then the alarm magically turned off i think he knew her room number because it was 216 which i thought was going to be a trivia question he just couldn't find her room that could be that's a deep question, though. I don't know. Her her apartment looks so shitty. Both of their apartments look shitty. And maybe this is a conspiracy theory thing, but, you know, Lena was apparently married. I think I, you got to assume that she was divorced. And I feel like those apartments are only apartments that divorced or single people live in. And I feel, I, I, I don't know, I guess this is just a long-winded way of saying I really like the production design and locations in this movie because those apartments just look, they look sad. They 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 look like they they that the lonely people live there. So congratulations, PTA. Good job. All right, Zach. What's the best scene? Oh, okay. Best scene. So many scenes. There's there's no bad scene in this movie. Um, I, I the shut up scene is obviously great. I love the scene in Hawaii when uh, the phone magically turns on. I mean, that's a whole great sequence with uh, the Shelley Duvall song. Um, he needs me like that's a 10 minute sequence. So it's hard to isolate that as one scene. I mean, I love the scene where he goes to, to the sister's house to the party and then knocks out the window. Uh, I don't know what to, I mean, I guess I'll go with the scene with him and Robert Smigel when, you know, Robert Smigel says, is there something wrong with you? And he says, I don't know if there's anything wrong with me because I don't know how normal people are, which I think <coughs> is the essential line uh, to my life as well. And then uh, he starts crying, and uh, it's that that moment is is fantastic. And this movie's perfect. I, I really, it's hard. I know we're gonna get to nitpicks or whatever, but there's so many great scenes in this movie. I was like, and I, and and I just love that it's 95 minutes long. Like, there's no there's no bad scene in this movie. There's nothing excessive in it. It's just it was just wonderful to rewatch. I know we're not allowed to say that on our deep dives. You know, we have to be super critical. But I, it was just every scene in this movie was my favorite. I mean, their dinner scene. The scene when he tells mm-hmm. her about the, the pudding. The scene when he beats the shit out of the, the bathroom. That's a great scene. I, I love it. I love I love everything in this movie. I can respect that. If there were a sequel, what would you want to see? I'll go first. It would simply be called Barry's Pudding Travels. <laughs> and I want to see everywhere he goes with his million frequent flyer miles. <laughs> I mean, he, he would eventually get like chased by the FBI and need uh, Hillary Swank to get him out of it, though. Yeah. I mean, there, there's but, something... But he'd, be, he'd be chased by Carl Hanready. I mean, let's face it. Yeah, there, 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 there's <laughs> something there for sure, yeah. Carl Hanready. Knock, knock. <laughs> He'd meet Frank, Frank William Abingdale somewhere along the way. Zach? I was just going to say he becomes a marine biologist and meets in, in Hawaii. He stays in Hawaii, becomes a marine biologist, and meets Drew Barrymore. I, I don't know if you guys like 54 states. Uh, I, bet, I you see know. where you're going there. Or maybe maybe 
D and D mattress becomes um, the store that Nicholas Cage works at at the end of Matchstick. The Man. carpet but, place, but that's a carpet place. I get it. I, I they they have a lot of overlaps though. I think we're talking conspiracy theories now instead of sequels. potentially. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm I'm blurring the lines. I, I think there is just a spinoff, maybe a prequel almost of of just like the phone sex business in general. Yeah, built upon <laughs> like you know. The Philip Seymour Hoffman model that he that he made, like I did, there like I think you could make a whole almost TV series about that with well, the brothers. The brothers going to hunt down the people that that call their service. I mean, the, like, the brothers feel know. like Peter Stormare and the Nihilists from Big Lebowski. Yeah, like how how There's long is this been going on for? Is what I want to know. Sure. Like how long have they been just like going and hunting these people that they find? You need a toe. Oh, I could get you a toe. I could get you a toe by lunch. Here's the real question: Is it? Is it too unbelievable that Barry and Lena basically become Howard and Dina? I mean, he's a he's a businessman who is it too much of a leap to believe that he moves into the Diamond District and they move into the suburbs? And I mean, he gains a lot of weight, gets glasses. And I think it's possible. I, I, it, I mean, pro, technically, pro, to go from Barry to Howie, you'd have to lose weight. Yeah. The problem is, I don't know if the sisters would really get along with the with Gooey and the whole Jewish family. I don't know how that would how, how Hanukkahs and Passovers would work. That would be a problem. All right. Well, we were trying to talk uh, some conspiracy theories already, but uh, any flaws, anything outdated conspiracy theories? Zach, you were already going on that. Yeah. Do you want me to say a couple more? Sure. OK. I These are just more questions. Um, so Georgia you know, on the, on the phone conversation, why does she keep asking him if he's jacking off? Like, isn't the point of being a phone sex operator to prolong the conversation so you can make it last as long as possible? I mean, maybe this gets back to the whole Jack Horner, you know, you want to make him get their joy juice out and then stay in the seat or something. She's the Jack Horner of phone sex operators. But like, come on, you get that for at the rate that he's paying for. Let's extend the conversation. He's begging to talk to her, to have to converse with her. And all she wants to do is get down to business. I mean, that's just bad business. Well, she already got his information. That's the whole point. So now she wants yeah, to she wants to make him satisfied, end it, and then, and then get money from him later. Like that that's is the whole point. A great point that I never considered. All right, Todd's <laughs> the MVP of this podcast. That actually kind of just blew my mind. You're right. She would want to get off the phone. <laughs> that's a great point. Okay, I take it back. That's a great point. Um, wow. Okay. The, I mean, the, on uh, two and then one day, at first I see the Denise show and now I get that theory. Man, my, I, I, I have the to Denise show. Terry, what do you think of the Denise show? You, I know you've seen it. I don't know if I have. I have You're the SNL guy. I know I am. I gotta look this up. I had never I heard of it, that, quite honestly. It's pretty funny, though. It's and then just I Sandler think... sitting on a couch. There was a great comment in the YouTube videos uh, that said they should when Sandler came back to SNL and hosted it, they should have done a Denise show where he says, it's been 25 years since I broke up, broke up with Denise. And that would have been very funny. Um, OK, a couple other things real fast. How do they get back from Hawaii together? Didn't he take his own flight there? Are they returning on the same flight? I feel like there was a scene missing somewhere where they returned back and got in his car or something. The last um, act does kind of just like skip, skip yeah, scenes. It has like. some curious, curious omissions. I agree. Like, okay, so he just goes to Utah with his phone in his hand. I mean, I always sort of accepted that as sort of like a magical realism type thing. But now I watch it, I'm like, is PTA trying to be cute here? Like, I, I don't, I don't know what that is. Would it been, would it have been so hard to just show him on an airplane again or something? Like, is this a dream sequence? I don't know what it is, but it does feel a little bit just 
unstructured and unanswerable. I don't, I don't know what was going on. It felt like he had to get it in under 95 minutes. That was the only way the studio was going to green light this shit. Um, okay, then the last thing I was going to say, did you? this is also something I noticed for the first time watching it. Did you guys notice that his tie color changed? It went from blue to gold to purple to red and then uh, gold again at the end of the movie. I'd never noticed that before. And it kind of aligns with this theory that Tony Hale said about the movie. Tony Hale was on a podcast talking about this movie a while ago. I remember listening to it. And he says there's this theory out there that Barry is really Superman because Superman wears blue and there's a scene where Barry is leaping in the air like Superman and he wants to get all these frequent flyer miles so he can fly. And Lena, Lena Leonard is the same initials as Lois Lane and she's red in the movie. And at the end of the movie, she's behind him like Superman's cape. And you could say that the crash at the beginning of the movie is like when uh, Kal-El, you know, the, the delivery of the baby on Earth. Like there's, there's like a lot of shit there that is parallels with Superman that I think both I'm intrigued by and obviously Bill from Kill Bill would have been intrigued by. So I, I, that's the real conspiracy theory here. Nice. That is, a, that is an interesting perspective. Um. <laughs> This is a fiction movie, not nonfiction. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Todd, do you have anything? Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's just weird that when he calls the phone sex uh, operator, that he keeps the TV on really loud. I, I, I don't know what he's actually trying to accomplish there. It's just really strange. Like, I mean, it's always, it's always going to be in his ear. I don't know why he's doing that, unless he really thinks that he's being that covert about it. And I also think that cell phones would have made this movie even more stalkery and awkward. Uh, I, I, I don't think it would actually would have helped Barry at all, but it would have made everything else even more awkward. It's true. I agree with that. Yeah. All right. I have two conspiracy theories that might actually just be one, depending on how you want to look at it. So uh, my first conspiracy theory is that uh, Gary and Licorice Pizza grows up to be Dean. That's not bad. Nice. And uh, and my my second my second conspiracy theory is Dean's brother is Sandy Lyle, which is Philip Seymour Hoffman, and along came Polly. Oh wow! Which which leads to it might just be one conspiracy theory because Gary from Licorice Pizza might grow up to be Sandy Lyle and be Dean's brother. Because they're, well, I mean, they're both the, act, they're both child actors. But the, the real connection is the mattresses, because young Gary sells the mattresses, and that's how he gets into the industry. Exactly. Yeah. There's I'm something there. I'm not sure. PTA mattresses. There's something there. I'm not sure. Maybe he just you know he watched The Godfather too many times and wants to go to the mattresses. Like I, I don't and know what it is. But... Philip Seymour Hoffman's son to play that part. I mean, yeah. there's something to it. There's something there. There well, is something there. And Jesse Plemons should be in the movie too, then, if we're really talking about having, you know, the, the, the lineage of Philip Seymour Hoffman alive. It's true. It's true. All right. By the way, did you guys notice that uh midway through the movie, Luis Guzman shows up in a suit? I love I don't I don't think I had noticed that either. Like I after he's like, <laughs> Why do you why are you wearing a suit to work? And he's like, because I felt like wearing a suit to work, and Luis shows up midway through the movie wearing a suit too. Like, like Louis loves him. That's a great bromance, <laughs> underrated bromance quality there. And like he's he so goes happy with him for him. the store to get put. He goes with him. Yeah, he, he doesn't ask any questions about the pudding. 
He's just happy to do it. He is genuinely excited when Barry goes to Hawaii. Hawaii, that's great. He he genuinely is so encouraged by that. That's like you know he's like his biggest fan. He really this is the this is the Dirk and and Reed relationship. He's if 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 Barry is going to go into a record label with that Mormon band, then you know that Luis is going to be rocking out like Reed did in the background. PTA is great at uh, bromances. All right, LVP and MVP. Todd, you're first. Um, my LVP is John Bryan, the composer, because oh, I, I, I think the music is really just sort of weird. It sounds like the score from Up. Like it, it's needed something more like electronic and weird, like a David Lynch score for it to really get the tone that it was looking for. The score is just weird. It's like a 1950s score mixed with Up or something. And my MVP is Mark Bridges, the Oscar-winning costume designer, and because uh, that suit is just fantastic. Like, I mean, like, he, they leave him in that suit because it's so great. It's a great suit, and Mark Bridges is the MVP. It is a great suit. You're right. Uh, my my LVP is a healthy choice in their six to eight week or four to six. Or yeah. I forget exactly what Ooh, it was. But fuck them. All the That's processing awful. time. Yeah, but yeah, he's but that, the, but but that's a great scene though because in spite of that he still buys the airplane ticket. That is proof that he loves Lena. That's a great moment in the story. Mm-hmm. It's very necessary. And my my MVP is uh, whatever taxi company out there is taking it upon themselves to dump mini pianos on the side of the road, um, and and taking those jobs like that. Those are heroes in our book, especially in uh, in the book of Barry. So. <laughs> Zach. All right. My LVP and MVP are the same, which is Shelley Duvall's singing voice, because it's not great. Uh, It's pretty bad. And yet it's so perfect for this movie. It's like she's off key, out of tune. And then there's like the, the piano part of that song that plays at the end that's also out of tune, like the harmonium. It shouldn't work at all. And yet it works perfectly for this movie. And I know we watched Popeye a couple years ago. I think there's a lot of Popeye in Barry Egan. Um, and there's probably some Popeye in this movie as well. Um, I would imagine Robert Altman, RIP, loved this movie. It's just, it's it's so great. And I can never think of that song. Not that that song is like, you know, a, 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 a billboard top 40 hit. Okay. But like that song and Punch Drunk Love are like the same thing. When I think of Punch Drunk Love, I think of that song. And screw you, Todd. John Bryan's music in this is fantastic. It's very dissonant. It's very in your face. It's like the trailer for that Coen Brothers movie, A Single Man. It's like pounding on your head. Uh, but it really kind of gets in your head, and it totally works. I love the sound uh, editing in, in this movie. It's like it's like if Christopher Nolan was deliberately doing bad sound because there's time when you can't hear what the characters are exactly saying, but it's on purpose and it's great. And uh, it's just it gets you in Barry's head so much. I love it. I also I just love that, Phil, that that Paul Thomas Anderson after Magnolia after Boogie Nights said, "Listen, I'm making a 25 million dollar art movie with with Adam Sandler." I mean that just that just takes cojones. That that should be that's real MVP right there. I mean if we're being honest. It's a good point. It's a good point. All right, let's wrap this up. Quote of the daytime. Uh, I'm going first on this one. Uh, my quote comes from uh, Marcel the Shell with shoes on, and uh, it's uh, it's what I think of whenever um, whenever I like a movie and you guys don't like it. Um, and uh, and and it, it's it's a quote from Marcel, and and Marcel just simply says, "What a sad kind of stupid." 
and uh, that's that's my quote. I, I thought that line was hilarious. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> sort of Zach, this podcast. There we go. There we go. It, it, it definitely describes this podcast. Zach. Uh, I'm going to quote Barry, who says, you can go to places in the world with pudding. I feel like that and the line possibly, here's some pudding. Why wasn't that in the regal top lines, right? You know, you're at the movie theater. Danny Trejo's about to eat something. Hey, there's some pudding. Everybody knows that's punch drunk love, right? There we go. They <laughs> real. Can that be a new category for us, by the way? The regal quote of the movie. There we go. I like it. Here's some like pudding it. is what I would choose from this or, movie. It really looks like Hawaii, Hawaii here. Yeah, it really looks like Hawaii here. That's a that is such a memorable line in this movie. It you imagine, hey you guys, it looks like Hawaii here. There we go. And then and then the next person just look, looks at them and says, "Shut, shut, shut, yes. shut, shut up." Yeah, that's our category. It's a great category. I love. I like it. that category. We're, we'll we'll add that in. All right, uh, Todd. Uh, so my quote comes from Paul Thomas Anderson. I think he was talking about this movie. He says, it's a gamble you take, the risk of alienating an audience. The, but there's a theory. Sometimes it's better to confuse them for five minutes than to let them get ahead of you for 10 seconds. And cool that is quote. the perfect way to describe his career. <laughs> because the frogs, or whatever in this movie, the piano. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, what? Okay. Or the mushrooms in Phantom yeah. Thread. That's a great quote. I've actually, I've shown that quote to my students and we've talked about that before. And we all agree that's absolutely true. Like leave them in the dark because that's so much better than everybody being able to predict what happens at the end of the story. I like it. That, that's a great one. All right. With that, we'll draw this podcast good to a for close. Regal. They wouldn't have put that in the commercial. It's true. True. Not well known enough. No, too good for we Regal. Way better than Pete Conrad. Uh, we'll be back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.